0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cinema Joes, the podcast where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. My name is Justin, and I am joined here, as always, with my two co-hosts. Please say hello to Alex. Hi, Justin. Hey. Uh, We're also here with Noah. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey. Well, gents, it's very good to be back with you again. Uh, It's been a little while. Uh, It's been a little while since our last uh, recorded episode, but uh, we are going to jump right into it. We, uh, if you are not aware, we are sort of still under quarantine. Uh, Coronavirus is uh, still in full effect, even as places are starting to open up again. Um, We are all still a little bit wary and. in light of that, we will be discussing uh, what we've been watching in this quarantine. Uh, that's certainly something that's come up a lot within uh, the popular culture now that people are sort of stuck at home, uh, can't go out to the movie theaters as much. I think it's given us a little bit of time to catch up on other things that maybe we've been putting off watching for a while. Uh, and. That's actually a segment we're going to move to the back of this episode, because we're going to start off by talking about The Lovebirds, the recent Netflix film uh, from Michael Showalter, starring Kumail Nanjiani and Issa Rae. Uh, So we'll be getting into that first thing. Uh, So we're going to be foregoing our typical full disclosure and giving you a sort of uh, no-holds-barred uh, big enchilada version of the full disclosure segment at the back half of this episode. You could say it'll be an orgy of what we've been viewing. Um, I suppose the one
1: could say that. Uh, <laughs> an unbroken passing of knowledge from the ancient Egyptians to our current viewing schedule.
2: Be excited uh, to sure. see what you've been watching uh, yeah, lately, Noah. This is... <laughs>
0: <laughs> this should be that should be interesting to uh, to uh, experience so once we get to that point uh, but in any case uh, so we're gonna start off actually with uh, this this recent release, like I mentioned, the lovebirds, uh, which I think has been, if I'm not mistaken has been fairly popular in terms of uh, Netflix's viewership. Um, but uh, let's start off what did really? you guys? Yeah, it's apparent, like, I think I, I remember okay. seeing, like, a list, and it was, like, kind of, it was at least in the top five, if not, like, one or two. Um, but uh, what did you guys think?
2: Yeah, well, it, it has been pretty popular according to the way that Netflix judges their view counts. So Netflix, like, releases mm-hmm. their top ten pieces of content Uh now and it was definitely high up in that top 10. but it's important to know that uh, a view of the film counts as I believe it's if you've watched more than two minutes of the film it counts as a view for Netflix so uh. it's not exactly the best uh metric yeah, in terms of overall popularity gotcha. uh means a lot of people have either accidentally let it start playing or uh have given it a chance before quickly bailing
1: on it you know so i mean netflix netflix is really aggressive about the whole automatic automatically playing the next thing in your queue if you're not attentive so Yeah, it's really easy to rack up counts by people just leaving their TVs on and not thinking
2: about it. The best way to think about that top 10 is like people are possibly vaguely (laughs) interested or have left their uh, laptop running while they fall asleep. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, what I thought about the movie was that uh, I thought that it was a pretty fun movie. It did like lower. it, It did not quite meet my expectations because. Uh, I'm a big fan of Issa Rae and Kumail Nanjiani separately uh, through their work in TV and film. Uh, we talked about an Issa Rae film earlier this year, one of the few films that I got to see in theaters in 2020, um, The Photograph. And you can check out my thoughts on her in that movie. I talk about like my relationship with her a little bit in more detail my relationship with her work i should say we do not know each other personally
1: <laughs> you are uh, in a oh, come on don't, don't be, be that moment. modest
2: <laughs> uh and also Hashtag life goals this is directed by michael showalter who's uh like film from 2016 the big sick with kumail nanjiani was one of my favorite films of the year so i had like at least modest expectations for this even if the trailers didn't kind of like jump out at me is super exciting and I have to say I think that Issa Rae and Kumail Nanjiani are both really good in the movie and I don't think that the movie around them really uh, supports them and gives them much Mm. to do and so sadly I can't give this like a really strong positive recommendation but I did I did think that they're pretty fun I thought that they had like a good good chemistry together I I in many scenes that felt like it was just them riffing off of each other. Like, I think that they were able to generate a lot of good laughs, but um, ultimately like didn't care about anything that was really happening in the movie
1: at all. So that is, (laughs) I would second that. I would second that. What, what moments in this film I enjoyed begin and end with those two. (laughs) And yeah, just about nothing else.
2: And like, to be fair, they make up, the vast majority of the film. You know, almost every yeah, scene is like the two of them. Of
1: the
2: so yeah. you're if you're enjoying what they're giving you, you're not gonna be bored by it. But um mm. yeah, I don't know. Justin, what did you think? You're you're interestingly quiet. Oh well I
0: <laughs> just patiently waiting for my turn. Um but no I As we do. I feel like this is a film that I mm. like a lot more in theory than I do in actual execution um just hearing the premise of this film i'd be like oh that sounds great awesome i love both these comedians i think they're incredibly funny they're just very they're very naturally likable screen presences um and even if it's not great then i'll at least have fun with them and i i don't know i kind of did it was like more sporadic entertainment for me (laughs) with this movie um i definitely agree with you the fact i don't think this is a boring film uh, I think it's consistently interesting. It has a nice pace to it, despite the fact that it does have several scenes of the two of them riffing with one another. Um, yeah, it does not. It does not
1: overstay its welcome. It is a very yeah, compact film.
0: Yes, exactly. It's not over long. Um, it doesn't. I, I I did feel like if if the film is good at at any one thing in particular, I'd say it's actually good at moving us from scene to scene and actually sort of wetting expectations for the next scene that's to come. Um, I think the way they build up Sacrarium is interesting. The way it actually pays off, maybe not so much. Um, but uh, this sort of uh, weird sex cult, which is clearly mod- uh, modeled after the uh, one from Eyes Wide Shut. Um, I
1: was, I was going to say,
0: guys, do I need to see why Eyes Wide Shut after seeing this movie? <laughs> I mean i would say you should see it just in general <laughs> but you don't think uh, this
2: movie covers the basics of eyes wide shut
0: uh, not exactly i mean the you don't uh, think this
1: does justice to the the aesthetic of stanley kubrick
0: does it do just clear artistic um, inspiration i mean because there's one thing stanley kubrick loves yes. <laughs>
1: there's one thing stanley kubrick loved it was his lead actors riffing and not following his directions to the team <laughs> yeah. He's famous um, for that.
0: But I, I guess one thing that I would say just about this film in general that I, I think could have just I just think this needed a a stronger um, I think it needed stronger guidance from its director. I think part of what can make improv in film so effective is not just that you have the talent there, but you also have the judiciousness as a director to say, OK, this stuff isn't quite working or this stuff might work. On its own, but in terms of the actual film itself, how is it actually adding to uh, both the mm. story and the immediacy of the moment? Uh, I just don't know if there's that level of judiciousness from the director here. Um, and I have to say, like I've I've really enjoyed Showalter's past two films: "Hello, My Name Is Doris" and of course "The Big Sick." Um, I think those films are, in addition to being very funny, have real emotional stakes to them that are unmistakable. Um, and so it's not that I don't think he could have done it. I just don't know if it almost seemed like the approach here was I had these two incredibly talented comedians. Let me just let them go. Let me see what they come up with and it'll work because they're funny. And to me, that actually makes the film seem a little less consistent in terms of the world it's trying to build in terms of the emotional stakes that it's going for. Um, and, uh, it just ends up feeling a little bit flat and kind of scatterbrained as a result
2: yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i think it's just a it's really a problem with the script which notably showalter had nothing to do with uh it was written by uh three gentlemen from canada uh aaron abrams martin giro and brandon gall and they mostly have worked in tv but they were responsible for a film in 2007 called young people fucking uh which is not Uh, okay that's not a movie that i've seen have you have you guys seen it
1: no, but we have the connecting thread now to the Illuminati ah, okay. sex cult. So, <laughs> well, okay, that's, that, this makes sense now. Three Canadians were like, "Hmm, I wonder what uh, life in the United States is like." Oh, it's, everyone uh... in New York City is part of an Illuminati <laughs> sex cult. That's that makes sense.
2: Well, that film, uh, YPF, as it's lovingly known in some corners mm. of the internet, apparently, w- like won a bunch of awards as like a Canadian comedy film, like indie film. Uh, but like they're all Canadian awards, so you know, like take that with a grain of salt. So they don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I just Ooh, I don't I just fired. don't think that they did enough to really like make this <clears throat> plot work or make the emotional stakes feel grounded, like the whole setup of them like the the intro to this movie i thought is actually pretty well done where it's like you have this whole scene where it's like they just recently met and like they they are like on in the like afterglow of like a really good first date and then you cut four years later and they're bickering and they're having arguments and they've clearly like they know each other too well probably and stuff like that
1: and like that that was a good transition that that was a good transition in terms of like starting the movie that was a great way to start it but yes
2: but then what they do is they say okay so now that you get the emotional like realities of these characters we're going to establish with a very very heavy hand that the point of this movie is that the kind of shenanigans that they get into is going to make them fall in love with each other again after they have just decided to break up and it's like yeah we get that like a lot of that stuff could have played a subtext but they repeatedly made it text and repeatedly called it out explicitly and it just really kind of took a lot of the momentum out of the film for me it just it made it feel a lot more artificial than it could have because as we said the leads have really good chemistry and they like bounce off each other very well and so when they get stuck delivering these like canned lines about how like (laughs) you never listen to me it's like okay we get it like we're literally seeing it happen we don't need (laughs) them to also say it it's yeah. just like every emotional point gets underscored right up until the end, and it really just like it. I don't know. That just took me out of the movie consistently.
0: Yeah,
1: and and it's a yeah, shame because it, it, and it's not like there's an yeah.
0: I, I was just gonna say like I think it's you mentioned that earlier scene. I think what's really effective about that that sort of beginning scene is there is that they're kind of like trying to figure out if um they clearly have feelings for one another and want a lot more than um this this sexual encounter that they've just had but they're also trying to kind of measure the other i just thought that was a and try to figure out like where they are in their kind of processing of of one another i just thought that was a really effective and truthful depiction of that stage of a you know of a budding relationship um and yeah it is i just feel like after that it just kind of I don't know. It just, it starts to feel a lot more kind of generic. I wish it had that kind of more specificity that they established in the beginning.
2: Yeah. And then also, like, I feel like a movie like this often has a few like steel scening moments by or scene stealing moments by like a supporting cast member that just like comes in and just like is super funny and just dominates the movie for five minutes and then gets out, you know? And this movie didn't have that at all. Like, I mean, okay, I think I was gonna Anna say, Kemp's character like... kind of, like, they tried to do that with her, but it just—I don't mm-hmm. know. The, number one, they wait. wait gave was she away... the
1: congressman's wife?
2: Yes, and they gave away mm-hmm. that okay. entire scene in the trailer, so that might be a problem for me, yeah. like having seen the trailer. Oh. Uh, mm-hmm. and but
1: yeah, I didn't see the trailer at all going into this. Okay.
2: But even still, like it doesn't like that scene feels like it's building to something and then they just run away and then it like like she pops up later in the well, in the sex club, but like only as like a dropped line of dialogue and like otherwise it's like <laughs> it just doesn't go anywhere.
1: Yeah, and it's like we we just saw those like that woman and her husband got like their kneecaps caved in during the escape attempt, but they're like fine apparently. They're there and they've suffered no ill effects of having, like, a fire extinguisher thrown into their legs.
0: Well, they're rich, Noah, so, of course, they, you know... They're what? They're rich. They're the upper class, so they can, of course... Yes, okay, to... all right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's... Did, did the Southern accent add anything to that scene? Like, was that necessary?
2: I think that they thought it would be comedically effective. I don't know if it necessarily <laughs> translated that well for me.
1: Because I was just like, wow, this is not this is not gelling
0: yeah um yeah i don't know that that scene i because a lot of the scenes you're talking like and i i also think i wish that uh another another performer in this is actually an actor i really like uh he's one of those that guys who plays the cop who's sort of the main antagonist this film paul sparks um (laughs) That's he also, is credited
2: like, as Mustache in the yes, movie, which I, is actually I a very funny
0: joke. <laughs> they are only bicycle and mustache. I believe are the only names given to those two particular characters. Yeah. Um, and that was but,
2: that actually was one of my favorite jokes in the movie. Is when they're like interrogating the frat boy. And they're like, what do you know about bicycle? And he's like, wait, what? And it's like they just literally call him bicycle to them because that's if you haven't seen the movie, that's like the nickname that they give the guy who was riding a bicycle who they are like witness the murder of. And so like between the two yeah. of them, they keep saying bicycle and mustache because the guy who killed him has a mustache. And it's like totally like believable shorthand. But then when they like bring that out into the open and that's how they're talking about them to other people, it is very silly. And yes. especially in the context of the a, of, a, of them trying really hard to give a tough interrogation scene like that. That was that was maybe one of the funnier parts of the movie for me. But go yeah.
1: ahead. You were I talking about I also mustache. do like the bit. I, I do like the bit <laughs> towards the end where they're finding out that they're not suspected for murder and then they start blurting out all this illegal stuff they've done throughout their lives. Yes. <laughs> and they keep trying to stop each other that like that. That was one of the improv parts that actually worked for me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just was going to say with regard to, to mustache in particular, I just, again, that's one of those elements of the film that I just think is not quite um, given the true comedic potential that, uh, that it could have had. And I think Sparks is definitely one of those guys who could do that and it just doesn't seem like that was really in the interest of the filmmakers. And I don't know, maybe that speaks to a larger problem I had with this film where um, I just... Again, it's it's the setup is there, the concepts are there, and just there isn't just the true sort of fleshing out of these to be really funny or really meaningful. Um, we haven't really talked yet, uh, or at least in detail, about the sex cult at the center of this film, which is just kind of there. And I guess the idea is that the the idea there seems to be okay what if we did like kind of like a sex cult from eyes wide shut and we'll just kind of play that straight while kumail and isa riff on it and that seems to be the concept of that whole scene um but then once they're there they're just i was thinking to myself
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) i I kept thinking to myself like this should be a lot nuttier than it is like i should this should be Boggling my mind with how insane out of the blue it is, but it's just not. Yeah, like, what what aspects? We're here in an Illuminati sex cult, and it's not, it's not, yeah, it's not like surprising me.
0: What aspects of that cult are they attempting to parody, and really, it's not really anything, seemingly.
1: Oh, and the host has a weird southern accent too in that scene.
2: Well, like, it does take place in New Orleans, so that's why there are southern accents. Really? Yes, it, they, yeah, it's explicitly they... New Orleans. They make a point <laughs> yes. of saying it multiple times. <laughs> oh, okay.
1: I kept assuming it was New York City. <laughs> no, no. They keep <laughs> talking about it being New Orleans. It's my racist, my racist against Louisiana jersey. Mind. It's like
2: a, it's like a very particular bias that you have, I guess. Um, but yes, it's <laughs> my New York yeah, no, bias it takes place in New Guilty Orleans. Charged. That's why there are Southern accents. I think the Anna Kemp Southern okay, accent is right. definitely <laughs> deployed purposefully with comedic intent uh but the other characters they are just from the south that's why they talk that way uh- and it was <laughs> okay, okay in wait, fact hey, guys one other line yours. that i actually
1: did find funny when they're at the convenience store and a cop is staring them down and they're worried for a second that they're like the cop is hunting them for the murder <laughs> but then he says oh wait no he's just a regular racist cop and she goes oh thank god
2: <laughs> yeah like that's so like that's the thing is like there's enough thing if you turn this on on a friday night because you have nothing to do and you're like, I want to watch a new movie and there aren't new movies that exist anymore. Uh, you, you would definitely have a fine time, I think. You know, like it's not going to it's you're not going to sit there and be like, oh, my God, this is I can't I have to turn it off. It's so un- intolerable. Like there's little bits here and there that make it work and like we keep saying like the two leads are just very effective and very fun together so you're never going to be bored and the plot moves pretty Mm -hmm. consistently from one set piece to the next it's a very tight 90 minutes they get everything in but i think you're probably going to forget about it like the minute that you stop watching it
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it's i mean in terms of netflix movies like when we did hold the dark and um Mute a couple of years ago. Those those are Netflix movies that I loathe. So this is not anywhere near that level. Uh, (laughs) It's just it's it's incredibly middle of the road.
0: Well, and also um, we we have we haven't mentioned this yet, but uh, this was originally intended to be a theatrical release, and uh, I think and that's actually why you see the Paramount logo, which I was like I at first I so I not knowing that going into the film and seeing Paramount behind I'm like. Wait, what? Like I was just expecting to see like, you know, a Netflix film, uh which it is because its rights were sold to Netflix, but it was just it's just interesting because oh, okay. seeing right. this I'm like, oh yeah, this makes sense. This makes sense as a Netflix film. Like
2: it's kind of yeah, it this was... fits
0: within the stereotype <laughs> of that kind of thing, you know. What that is like, not, Netflix but.
2: Netflix films hmm. like Especially like a Netflix rom-com, it has like a very, it tends to have a smaller cast than a regular rom-com might. And it has like, it's very like built around its core, like duo of people. And then like everything else is just sort of like, it like lives or dies based off of that chemistry, basically. And like the mm-hmm. the surrounding edges of it aren't always as well fleshed out. And I feel like this totally fits in, as you said, with that kind of whole <laughs> trope of what a Netflix rom-com is, but it's funny because, as you say, it isn't really a Netflix rom-com. Paramount was planning on releasing it in April in theaters, and then they sold the rights to Netflix when they realized that uh, they, the theaters were going to be closed, and it didn't really make sense for them to try to hold this until another time, like when they had just spent two months marketing it like the, and it was really like, it was really, it was the beginning of April that this was supposed to be coming out and theaters closed to the very end of, of March. So they really had put almost all of their promotional budget out there already. So that's why a movie like this for people who might not realize, like that's why a movie like this wouldn't necessarily get delayed, but just pushed off to a streaming service because Mm. at that point they would then have to basically double their promotional budget by repeating everything they just did whenever this movie ended up coming out in theaters and especially <laughs> considering that the movie isn't necessarily the strongest asset I don't really blame them
1: for doing what they did yeah no, I yeah, this is not the sort of movie where I would say oh the studio should have gone for it they should have like put more money in it. <laughs> I don't yeah. think they would have gotten a return on that investment
2: yeah I think that if this movie was scheduled to come out in like June I don't think that it would have ended up on Netflix I think they probably would have just held it but because they had done two months worth of marketing for this movie, they're not going to do that again. They're just going to cut their losses mm-hmm. at that point.
0: Yeah. So I do need to ask a very key question uh, to you two gentlemen about this film. What did you think of the fireworks scene?
1: <laughs> there was a fireworks scene? Yes. The song was...
2: Fireworks yes. by Katy Perry. Oh.
1: I thought it was I can't stand that song so.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I don't love that song either, but I think it was indicative of like my larger problem with the like the emotional narrative of the film where it, mm-hmm. instead of it being them just like like getting caught up in the song and like letting their guard down and coming together, like they have to literally narrate every step of the way to for the audience to be like like yeah. isa being like this is what i always do and like Kumal being like this is what you always do you always just sing and she's and she's like well you should just relax and just sing with me and it, it's like
1: it was so you know that that whole scene i kept thinking oh my god that poor driver she didn't ask for this <laughs> she's just trying to make a few bucks like she, she doesn't need this shit this I is mean, unnecessary. She had the song on though, so yeah. presumably well, but she like, likes But it. like she was turning on she the radio, she seemed to be
0: enjoying it. I mean, she wasn't like as you know, sort of uh, enthusiastic
1: as as <laughs> as
0: Israe and Kumail.
1: But like you know, I would not be that chill if someone was in my <laughs> well, rideshare or Uber singing along to "Fireworks" by Katy Perry.
2: What did you think about that scene, Justin? Oh
0: well, I don't know. It was just one of those scenes where. I could feel it, to me, it felt a little bit like the film trying desperately to have this moment of triumph and like, and yet it being so completely telegraphed that it just really didn't work for me at all. And on top of that, adding a song that I really can't stand didn't help. But, you know, however, I will say when Kumail does kind of break through and sort of embrace it. I thought that was very charming. I thought that the way that he sang it, kind of like almost in this kind of goofy way, was like very particular. Um, I thought that so it's one of those things, and maybe this is reflective of the movie as a whole, where it's like structurally, I'm not quite sure it works, but there are individual moments within it that do.
2: Yeah, I and, I think that it is. I think that that's a fair way to categorize it. And like I said, for me, it's one of the examples of just like if you let the the actors do what they're doing without having Mm -hmm. to underscore it with like very like contrived dialogue explaining everything in detail uh it would have been a more effective moment and that's kind of like the movie in a (laughs) nutshell
0: (laughs) all right Well, I think we'll leave our discussion there then uh, of the lovebirds and we will segue into uh, what I hope will be a long extended uh, just – Sort of chronicling of everything we've watched. Well, maybe not everything, but certainly the more memorable <laughs> things we've watched. Literally everything. Quarantine. Um, and the reason I we say this, we begin with
1: May. The, we begin with March the fifteenth. Eight
0: a.m. <laughs> yes. Well, that was that was. So that's one thing. Yes, uh, that's kind of where I was uh, for when I was looking at the sort of the films from that I that I watched within the period within this period of quarantine. I was like, okay. Let me figure out when the stay-at-home order was issued, at least for New Jersey, so that I have like a rough estimate to work from. Um, There were sort of, you know, rumblings of it happening before it did, Uh, but yeah, I'm really excited about this because I know, like Alex, I've been following your letterbox, so I've seen a lot of the classic films you've been watching, Um, and with you, Noah, I actually don't, I know a little bit of the I mean maybe like a few of the films you've been watching but not everything so I'm kind of curious uh and maybe we'll start with you uh so uh well let me just say let me start off by by asking both of you how did you organize your list for this particular um segment
2: uh like how it is for this segment or like when I was watching movies like how did Um, I organize myself
0: well uh, I guess we could do both you want to start with the first
2: yeah, sure. So like Wait. for this for for this segment, I kind of broke down uh, into like a couple of different groupings, like how I've been watching movies, because it's kind of gone back and forth. Um, So like movies from this year or recently from this year, uh, movies that I've been watching on the Criterion channel movies that I've been watching from that fit like a couple of themes also. Uh, that i've been following so that's kind of how i grouped them for our episode and that's more or less hmm. how i watched them when i watched them
0: okay um how about for you noah
1: i have seen malcolm x and i saw the last season of Shira. so these
0: are the only things you've been watching um <laughs> <weren't you? laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, a month or so ago, I saw the first raid movie. Oh, okay. So, guys, so... my watching activity has gone through the fucking floor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have see because my my work schedule, my full time work schedule, was completely uninterrupted by the lockdowns here in Germany. Simply because, uh, it, working in the public sector, if I was physically able to work, I had to work, which mm. was fine, which was absolutely fine by me. But it meant that my day was pretty much exactly the same as before. Um, just with added emotional stress of being in the midst of an apocal, uh, world-changing global pandemic, and pretty much every night I'd be like, I could sit down and watch a new movie for two hours that I'd have to, like, (laughs) engage with, uh, but my brain is very tired, and I'd rather just build my cathedral in Minecraft, Ah. and, um, empty out mountains looking for diamond and lapis lazuli. So, (laughs) I... Probably, I would roughly say the amount of running time, film running time that Alex <laughs> and you have viewed is probably the amount of time that I put into my Minecraft world <laughs> the past
2: two months. And that's totally and that respectable. Like the quarantine <laughs> and the COVID 19 crisis has affected us all in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, just on this podcast, it's affected us all differently. Like Noah just described how it has affected him, which is uh, not giving him any free time. And really impinging his emotional ability to relate with the rest of the world, which I totally understand. <laughs> uh, I know now, for... my wife, on the other <laughs> hand,
1: she has been tearing through like whole reams of animes and shows that um, she had been interested in seeing for a while. So Stella could sit here for like an hour and describe all of the <laughs> both old and new anime shows that she's like watched from start to finish.
0: Which is why we're about to bring her in to replace you, right?
1: Yes, I am. I'm firing myself. (laughs) Um, Um, Yeah, my life has been
2: altered considerably, uh, I should say, the nature Mm. of my work uh, is such that it's actually very difficult to do while maintaining appropriate social distancing and things like that. And so my work hours have been reduced considerably um, and with no access to, like, outside world i have spent a great many hours watching films uh at this Hmm. point as we're recording i've watched 58 films uh since mid-march which is uh definitely a high for me in terms of 56
1: more than me (laughs) (laughs) let me me clarify like i'm aware of the fact that i am very fortunate and that my day today was really very minimally effective and that it i am fortunate in that my work was in no way and is in no way threatened by all this um and i'm proud of my job and of my work and i'm I'm happy to be doing it but i've been even more tired each night when i get home and i'm just like i can't i can't watch a two-hour movie i just my brain can't take it yeah i think that's totally that's. Totally I, I'm in well. no way griping about my life circumstances.
2: No, no I think we're, <laughs> we so all we all have it better than a lot of people out there right now. So yeah, know, that goes without saying. <laughs> yes. <Yeah.
0: laughs> um. Yeah, and that's yeah. Like for myself, I was this time that I that I had. Like I I've been working from home as I'm sure many people have. Um, which of course takes away the commute, which is always great. But at the same time, you always think you're going to have more time than you do.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, exactly.
0: (laughs) I, but I will say like, I've been much more consistent with my movie watching, especially since I moved into a new apartment and haven't had as many social opportunities. Um, and, uh, which has been really nice, but at the same time, you know, you miss that other part of your life. I'm sure a lot of people are in a similar predicament. Uh, I have, as I'm sure a lot of people are aware, I tend to catch up on the bulk of a a film year the following year. So I've been watching a lot of 2019 films. Uh, I am almost through my
1: list. Uh, So I should have. Global pandemic. For (laughs) Justin to be only six months behind the times and not 12. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. That is, this is the price. Uh, you are people. not this exaggerating is the with that. Um, but we uh, all wished for Justin to be faster people. Look what we've brought upon ourselves. <laughs> it's a it's a real monkey paw
2: situation that we have. Yeah. Our
1: <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, so
0: the way I've so I've been watching, like I said, a lot of films from last year, which I'll be talking about. Um, I did see one film from this year that was not the Lovebirds recently. Uh, it's, so far is the only film we have not talked about on the podcast. <laughs> so, so I'm at a grand total of four films from this year so far um, uh, same year. but uh, uh, so I, I did try to divide these up as for this segment. I did try to divide them up into categories. I have some films from last year that I think were overlooked. Um, either by both critic either by critics or audiences or both. Um, I have some films that uh, I honestly could have just I think I could probably lump them together and say like films that Alex told me were great and then I saw them and was like, yeah, this guy knows absolutely what he's talking about. Um so I
1: have some <laughs> of those films and then films that Alex and then and then there's the category films Alex told me were great and I saw him and said he's lost his goddamn mind. <laughs> the pandemic has infected his brain.
0: Um but then I also I also just wanted to have one film that I that I just thought was just plain fun. Uh so I have something for that as well. Uh so yeah, oh gosh, how do we want to start? Well, maybe we'll start with you noah um did you want to give us like (laughs) kind
1: of yeah yeah which i mean whichever one you'd like to start with first (laughs) one of my two options well i think (laughs) i I did talk about the raid um on one of our recording sessions already um which was which was just a fun you know fun pure action movie that i really enjoyed (laughs) just for the sake of it's really high octane martial arts like authentic art martial arts and it was fun to watch uh, like a like a like a lower budget John Wick film, um, I'll start with the lighter one first. Uh, so the last season of Shira, uh, and the Princesses of Power was released on Netflix, uh, in the continuing way in which Netflix has been expanding its anime and animation offerings, uh, and I say that in both senses because there are some Japanese animes that Netflix has also been, uh, bankrolling and sponsoring. Um, and featuring on its site so both within the united states and outside of the united states netflix has really been doing a lot more i'd say since like 2017 2018 uh, was when netflix started to release a lot more original anime stuff and animation stuff and for the most part i really like what um, what netflix has been doing like for example they're the primary home of the dragon prince which is Mm -hmm. Uh, a mixed style animated show that I, I'm pretty sure I've talked about it on here before. Yes, at I did. We had, we had, yes, yes. no, that's right. <laughs> we had Alex on as a guest, and I talked about it after the third season came out, uh, where a, a number of the people involved in that show are people who like were involved in Avatar: The Last Airbender. Um, so they they've been doing a lot of great stuff, and the 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 big like the the big topical one right now is Shiro, which just concluded. Um, should I, should we go into spoilers? Should I go into spoilers for this?
2: Um. Well, I think you could give us just like general thoughts on it, just right. to, for people who may not have watched the series. I know this is the final season uh, that just aired. Yeah, there
1: are, there are five seasons. I'd only seen. I've only seen the second half of the show. Like that's this is another one of the shows that my wife started watching on her own, and like somewhere around season three, uh, I started tuning in and like watching it with her and then really got into the last season and then this season and it's okay speaking as speaking as someone for whom this has been their one and only experience to like the she-ra he-man universe because this this is a spinoff of the old um he-man skull what's his face i have the power skeletor uh, it's the masters of the universe is
2: technically the the franchise
1: yeah, hmm. so the, it, it's a spin. It, it's it's an it's the latest iteration of one of the many Masters of the Universe uh, franchises, which I had, it, which I had, had zero interest in before. I never cared about He Man or like anything else. Uh, like I was only I was I was only aware of it for meme purposes. Uh, because if nothing else, the old He Man has provided much fodder to the internet in terms of, of meme material. Uh, <laughs> Indeed. So Shira specifically focuses on like the what was originally I guess the female version of He-Man, this woman who had a magical sword that could turn her into like a super powerful warrior and uh, you you it basically takes place in this magical world called Etheria where it's very Miyazaki-esque in a lot of ways like there are all all sorts of like strange plant and animal human hybrid Beings that are all in touch with the the magical, the mysterious, the mysterious magical nature of this planet, and there is like an an alien race called the Horde that has uh, also co opted uh, natives of the planet itself in a war to take over the planet and dominate it, just because because the Horde's evil. I mean, they're called the Horde, and actually, the first <laughs> episode of the show has a joke about the main character like wait, you're part of the Horde and it never occurred to you that they were evil? Well, no. <laughs> um, so that's the basic setting. And the show begins with uh, a young human... Er, I, I don't know if the, in air quotes, regular looking people are referred to as humans, but one of like the, the humanoid main characters um, is part of the Horde. She'd been raised in the Horde and indoctrinated and brainwashed into it. Uh, and then she goes into like this magical woods on a whim and discovers a sword um, caught, you know, not in a stone, but caught in a tree branch. But very King R3 uh, pulls out the sword and discovers that she actually is She-Ra or she has the power to access she which is basically treated as like a separate entity that she can channel through the oh. sword. And her eyes are opened to the nature of the Horde that she dedicated originally uh, dedicated her life to fighting for. And realizes that they're evil and they're destroying this beautiful planet. And so she resolves to join the Rebellion and defend it. And the Rebellion is led by basically a loose league of princesses. The exact political structure is a little bit foggy, but I mean, it's not important. There are a series of kingdoms and, and princesses who have specific magical powers... And they're trying to rebuild uh, a rebel alliance to uh, defeat the horde once and for all and free Etheria. Uh, and that's that's the brunt of the show. Hmm. Um, it's very so it's 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 very much sci-fi fantasy. There's a lot of futuristic technology and robots and machines, but there's also like fantasy level uh, like there's a literal winged unicorn Pegasus character, um, and all the characters have these magical powers. So it's a very, like, it's a very colorful, uh, vibrant fantasy sci-fi fusion in terms of the world. And it's just, I mean, it's basically a fun, colorful show for kids. What has made the, what what has had the new one making so many waves is the fact that it's been very groundbreaking in terms of being extremely, explicitly uh, LGBTQ plus oriented. There are a lot of characters who are um, who are who are presented in a very non-binary way, or there are a lot of homosexual characters. There are uh, one character has uh, two dads who are openly portrayed as um, a gay couple. Um, there are um, lesbian couples, uh, and it's basically yeah. So it's an extremely like in a lot of ways. Uh, my wife and I kind of agreed on this when the last season ended Um, in a lot of ways, it's taking stuff that like um, the legend of Korra kind of legend of Korra kind of cracked open the door by establishing at the very, very end that, you know, the, the main character Korra was bisexual. Then Steven universe, like cracked it, like opened up the door even more because Steven universe deals, deals a lot with sexuality and gender identities. Uh, And then she were just like, fucking kicks the door down and jumps through and is like, Hey, we're all queer. Uh, Here's a bunch of rainbows. So that's been sort of, that's been like one of the real groundbreaking aspects of the show. And it really is beautiful in that sense. Like the, the the relationships between the characters and the romances, uh, both the, in air quotes, traditional romances and the queer romances are all really, really sweet um, and romantic and beautiful. And yeah, like, and it just, it just, it's not like the the last season made me really emotional and I spent the past couple of days trying to figure out why <laughs> um, it might be the fact that, you know, we're all in the midst of a collective existential crisis and the show is just so happy and so fun. Um, and so shiny <laughs> that my brain is just sort of latching onto it. And my brain's like, yes, Noah, you're actually an eight year old glitter princess. You've been this all along. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. Plus <laughs> did. Um Yeah, just did, like the like the, the, the ending of season five really goes hard on that, on like the, the sentimentality, and I just uh it, it it affected me way more than I thought it would. Um because it's not on a thematic level, not on a storytelling telling level. It's not on the same level as like Avatar or Korra or Steven Universe, where you know all those shows were very, were, you know, clearly mostly kid-oriented and very kid-friendly, but when they went for more adult or mature topics, they go deep into those more adult or mature topics, like, really, really deep. she never really goes that deep. There are plenty of, like, you know, big themes uh, about war and peace and, and violence and representation uh, and discrimination within it, but it's never, like, it's not as adult, in that sense it is much much more kid oriented on the whole so it doesn't have quite the same level of depth there are lots of aspects to the storytelling that forego depth and forego complexity for the sake of moving things along um like for example it's within the first episode that the main character you know who we established was a rising star within the horde like defects and completely turns her life on its head and so you know a a more someone involved in more deep in deeper storytelling would be like, well, no, they should have saved that and more built up like how big a life change this would be like. There there are a lot of story turns that could have been much more complex or much deeper or much more gripping than they're handled in the show. It's just like, okay, this happens, and now the story can move on to the next thing. Um and introduce the next character. But it just works. It's just fun. It's the the characters are fun and nice and enjoyable and it's just a joy to experience them um yeah and so like we finished i think within a week after it came out we finished the last season and i'm now starting on watching the first few seasons which i've never actually watched before uh just because like wow this ending was so amazing i gotta go back and like have the whole experience again so cool yes that is my confession i'm a glitter princess (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, I've heard good things about this show. I know we uh over the popbreak.com, the website that I'm the TV editor of, we just recently ran uh, a review of the final season and and our writer over there gave it a rave review as well. So, there's definitely a consensus. Okay, I got I got to
1: check that out then.
2: Yeah, she's a big fan. I I want to read
1: Okay, I want to I want to read other takes on the show now now that I'm getting caught up to speed. Uh so yeah, I wholly recommend Shira. Um, yeah especially for anyone who's just a fan of good animation um it's definitely not for everyone like it has a very certain aesthetic that i'm able to deal with but other people would be like oh no it's too shiny it's too colorful
2: yeah you may (laughs) you may not be aware of this but when the show first was announced which was only like two years ago i can't believe they've managed to cram in five seasons but uh when the show was two initially of the seasons announced... are very
1: short, like two of the seasons are only like six or seven episodes. OK, so... that makes a
2: little bit of sense. <laughs> but when the show was it's initially in total, announced, like it got episodes. like when the show was originally announced, it got a lot of controversy because there were a lot of uh, a lot of men on the Internet who were big fans of the original property in the 80s uh, were very upset with the character designs and the animation style uh, basically, because the characters weren't sexualized enough, um, and that was like yeah, they, a those guys for them. can
1: go <laughs> yeah, those guys can go stick it up their ass. Um,
2: <laughs> but uh, yeah, they,
1: so they can, they can was, take the sword of Shira and stick it right up their butts.
2: That was a big flashpoint um, at the start of the series, but knowing where the series went, it's really not a surprise that those guys were not the target demo for this new iteration and I'm not at well, all yeah. mad at that because uh, and they're up in like arms again because
1: great. and they're up in arms again because oh my god it doesn't get much queerer than the end of season 5 guys <laughs> <laughs> and now they're up in arms about again but again they can stick it up their ass um, yeah that's my hot take on that <laughs> <laughs>
2: no fools barred that's what we promised you <laughs> yes, <indeed>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: This is full disclosure, after all. All right, so that's the that's the happy, cheerful, glittery thing that I've been watching. So I'm I'm still in the midst of that now. Like I'm 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 season one right now.
0: Um. So do you have anything bright and colorful for us, uh, Alex?
2: Uh. Well, I was not gonna start out with bright and colorful. I certainly <laughs> have a little bit of that in my in my repertoire, but where I wanted to oh, go was uh, a trio of films, one that came out actually this year, and it's currently my favorite film that I've seen in 2020, uh, which sounds slightly more impressive than it is because I've only seen nine movies from 2020. But still, I could definitely see this being in my top ten by the end of the year. It's a movie by Corey Finley, who uh, directed Thoroughbreds a few years ago, mm, which is a movie that with Paul I Paul think- Sparks. <laughs> Oh, yes, that's true. He is in that movie. Um, And I'm pretty sure you were a fan of that one, right, Justin? Yes. Yes, I was. Well, this is his latest movie. It's called Bad Education. It stars Hugh Jackman and Alison Janney and just like a slew of great actors in in supporting roles. Uh, And it's actually an HBO film. Uh, The movie premiered at it did the film festival circuit and was purchased by... HBO for distribution. Uh, It was originally intended as like a theatrical uh, film, though. And it definitely I'm a little bit upset that HBO picked it up because while I'm happy that I got to see it the way that I did, it's really robbing it of its opportunity to be an Oscar player when this whole nightmare is over. Um, and I think it could really have stood shoulder to shoulder. It's got an excellent screenplay. It's got really a tremendous lead performance by Hugh Jackman and and several really outstanding supporting uh, performances. Um, and for those of you who don't know, the movie is about a teaching scandal uh, in Long Island, which took place in like 2002, 2003, a range. It's a true life story. Actually, uh, Corey Finley is from the town where the story occurred uh and it is i don't want to get too in deep on the details of the story uh it is obviously a true story that many people might remember so uh it's kind of silly to say spoilers for that but i was not aware of the details and the story kind of really goes in a few unexpected places before you get to the ultimate conclusion so i wouldn't want to spoil that for anybody um but it's basically like the largest uh Fraud case to ever be brought up against a school district in American history. Uh, And it's crazy the way these people justified what they did to themselves. Uh, but in a way that is like really rich for narrative potential. Um, and Hugh Jackman, as the lead character, he plays this person who he is the superintendent of this school district. Uh, it's a very kind of like well-to-do school district on Long-, Long Island. They're very proud of the fact that they have reached number four uh, in the state in terms of test scores. And they are one of these.
1: How often do, how often do they drop that uh, fact? it's very
2: frequent especially early on like it's a very big factor (laughs) it's kind of like the rationale for all of the bad things they do is like well but we got to number 4 and i can get you to number 1 so don't you shouldn't worry about Sorry, that so
1: th- this was this was a real case this is yes. a real case can you give me like the brief summary of what happened because Well not that's I don't
2: it. want to give too much details because it kind of like flows it like it <sighs> it like the way the story unravels it's a bit of a mix between like a great Cohen brothers movie and like a good like s- processy movie about journalism uh and where in this case, the journalist is a 16 uh, year old girl uh, who is writing for her school paper um, and <laughs> kind of uncovers a whole mess of nonsense that she was never intended to uncover. <laughs> um, and it
1: <laughs> and then I came across the bloodied wood chipper.
2: <laughs> and that girl is actually she's played by an actress who um, I'm blanking on the name right now but she was in blockers uh a couple years ago she was really funny in that movie um
0: geraldine viswanathan
2: yeah yes that is correct yeah and she's she's been like popping up in things here or there and she always gives like a really strong performance this is her best showcase yet and she just plays this Mm. intrepid school reporter who is ironically enough inspired by the Hugh Jackman character to take this assignment seriously and get and uh do her due diligence and as she does she ex- she really uh reveals way more than anyone expected her to um so it's kind of a very shakespearean end to the Hugh jackman character in a lot of ways uh in the way that he kind of like inspires his own potential demise mm uh, by being a good educator. And that's a little bit of the tension of the film. Like he is a superintendent who, as I said, is very concerned with the test scores and college admission rates. And, uh, the school is very supportive of this because the better the school district is rated, the higher, the property taxes, the, the higher, the property taxes go, um, in the, in this town and the higher, the res- the real estate, sales are so everybody is very happy that things are going smoothly that they're not that they're not very interested in looking under the surface to see maybe necessarily where all the money is going and who's spending Mm -hmm. it uh and allison janney plays his kind of right hand woman in the film uh she's the person who's in charge of the books at the school and uh she just is as always flawless um (laughs) <laughs> it's just, it's a really,
1: does she, does she ever throw a knife at the teenage girl investigating? all no, this?
2: No, no, there's, it's actually like pretty interesting in, I no, I her. know, but it's pretty interesting in the way that they handle <laughs> the teenage character. Uh, it, it, it's very believable. Like there's, a, there's several scenes where they could have gone big and made it like a her against the world sort of situation, uh, where the adults are being like adver like extremely adversarial to her. Um, and instead, they like opt to be a little bit more realistic and grounded in the way they approach it. And I think that that is true for many moments of the film. And
1: I think the film is all the better for it. Uh, but truly. So to your knowledge, to your knowledge, does the film like stick to the actual events really closely? So
2: it compresses some things down. The actual, the char- the, the yeah, female okay. char- uh, the female reporter character is actually a composite of of like a whole team of, of young people who helped break the case. Um, and also the, and the timetables really get compressed, uh, in a way that is, is narratively very fulfilling. So you can understand why they would do the way that they did, but, but the, but overall the facts of the case are still the same. Like they don't really go too far in that direction. Um, and you really get a sense of – like you really get an intimate portrait of Hugh Jackman as this man who is just – he's very – he he is a very skilled educator who really cares about his students. He's one of these people who if you uh, graduated – like if you have a uh, – brother who graduated five years ago, and you walk into his office, he can just immediately recognize that that was your brother, and that this is what he cared about. And this is the college that he went to. And this is what he wants to do when he grows up. And like, and, and that's the kind of person he is. He just is very invested. Um, but he is also a very vain and complicated person who uh, cares a lot about appearance as well in a variety of senses of what that means. Uh, So he's just truly tremendous. He's really excellent. And the whole movie around him is really great too. So I really strongly recommend anybody who has access to HBO to seek this out, to watch it. It's, it's really one of the best films of the year. It's it like, it moves really fast. It has great direction. It's stylish in all of the ways that you would want a movie like this to be stylish without ever feeling distracting uh and it just has like a tremendous amount of like great character actors ray romano is in this doing a really good job playing (laughs) this kind of like uh just like over like over his head sort of uh municipal manager of sorts um and yeah it's just it's a great film i really really recommend everybody checking that out uh Is it only on HBO right now? It is only on HBO. I don't know what its international rights are. Um, Like, I don't know how you'll be able to access it, Noah, or our friends from outside of the country.
1: Maybe sometime later this year. Yeah,
2: but it is an HBO bought the rights to the film. So it is an HBO film at this point. Okay. Uh, So it'll pop up definitely around Emmy time and stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, HBO Max is going to be launching pretty soon. So that might help get it into the hands of more people because HBO Mm -hmm. Max will have HBO's... We'll have HBO's full library up. So but yeah, that strong, strong, strong recommend on that. Uh it's the only real 2020 film of note that I've seen, so I decided to kind of pair it with these two really cool, uh, sexy art house vampire movies from the 80s that I saw. Because you know why not?
1: Uh, what better to fit with Hugh Jackman?
2: Uh, and the, those movies are Tony Scott's The Hunger and Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark, which are two movies that I'd never seen before, didn't know anything about. They are both expiring on Criterion in April, which means you can't currently watch them anywhere. Um, but when they pop back up, really strong recommend, especially if you could do a double feature, which I did. Uh, they're both... Uh, they're both weird sexy art house vampire movies is the best way I could say it. (laughs) Like it's, and like one is like very aggressively feminine and the other is like very aggressively masculine in interesting ways. And that like further helps them as a pair. Uh, but yeah, they have, they both have such really rich visual styles and just like come at the vampire myth from like a very, from very interesting angles. Uh, and I really strongly recommend both of them. So I think you guys should check them out. The Hunger has, has, uh, David, David Bowie in it, um, which might help you be more interested. He plays a vampire, um, at least in the first half of the film. Uh, (laughs) but, uh, yeah. And they both, both of the movies really stress, like, they're not so much, like, obviously, like, I want to suck your blood is like a part of a vampire movie but they're both more about the immortality aspect of it and the way that that impacts your interpersonal relationships. Um, And they come about it in very different ways where like the hunger is basically about this, like uh, this old French woman who is immortal and just picks up lovers to like globetrot around the world with uh, where, and like they're just like in like the lap of luxury and just this unimagined accumulation of wealth. Whereas uh, near dark is the polar opposite. It's about this like grubby, grungy, uh, like group of of uh ne'er do wells who are uh, vampires and like they're more like a bi- a biker gang slash uh like black hat western crew, uh who are just like taking the streets of the of the west uh, of New York of the <clears throat> taking the streets of the west of America and just like uh running wild and like burning down <laughs> bars and stuff. So it's like super, oh, wow. super opposite ideas of what this very potent myth could be, but they they really complement each other in a really twisted sort of way.
0: Sounds like the Cormac McCarthy version of a vampire sex <laughs> movie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that the story behind that behind near dark or yeah behind near dark is that Catherine Bigelow really wanted to make a western um and then uh, yeah. found that through a genre angle she could she could explore those mm. ideas of masculinity in that in that context so it definitely yeah. has a western noir sort of vibe to it like merging those two ideas together uh, in a really interesting way
0: yeah. I mean, I just, just to really go back very briefly to what you're saying about like bad education, like that's definitely one that was on my radar. I'm, I'm really looking forward to checking it out. Um, and I've been really glad to see it getting good notices because I thought Thoroughbreds was a really strong debut and uh, it's nice to see him like continuing that streak. Um, But yeah, these these other two films that you just talked about, it's funny because I know sometimes, uh, especially as I'm watching some of the more obscure films from a certain year, you'll say to me like, where did you even hear about this one? And it's nice with those two films you mentioned for me to be like... Oh, now I understand how he feels seeing some of these movies of like, where did you hear about this? Like, it sounds really good, but like at the same time, it's like I can't believe like I did not know until you posted it that Catherine Bigelow directed a vampire western, and it just made me aware of my own ignorance when it comes to uh, these kinds of things. So.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, it like it helped, like basically. So, I'm a subscriber to the Criterion channel, and every month they post what is expiring at the end of that month, and that's a good organizing principle. So, I just like go through that list and see if there are any things that I really want to see that are in there. And, like, any Catherine Mm -hmm. Bigelow movie is going to be there for me because her movies are so hard to find online. Most of the streaming rights are just not where you would expect them to be. So, that was just a must watch. And then The Hunger was actually recommended to me by a friend of the show, Matt Taylor, who said that it was a really sexy, cool, fun vampire movie uh, that I had to watch. And so I said, OK, fine, I'll watch it.
0: Nice. <clears throat> well, uh, for sort of my first segment here, I'm probably going to I'm going to put two films together because I think they're both inspiring, albeit in very different ways. Um, I'll start with the uh, one film from 2020 that I mentioned that I had seen. This is a documentary. It is called, uh, and just bear with me on the title here, it's called Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution. Uh, once you get past the title and actually watch the film, you'll see that it's actually a really fascinating story not just of uh, the camp that it refers to Camp Jeaned which was a camp that existed mostly in the 70s for uh, for mostly for children but more I'd say more teenagers uh, with disabilities uh, which really allowed them to feel truly uh, I would say just treated with dignity and respect, which you know I think at the time may have been more of a radical concept than it should be. Um, but the film also makes a case that this sort of environment uh, is what allowed for what the film continues to explore, which is the political activism that came out of this uh, particular group of people. Um, it focuses on a few uh, fairly key figures uh Denise Shearer Jacobson, and especially Judith human, who was sort of the face and and really the the brains behind a lot of the uh protests during the seventies in which uh she and this and uh and others were fighting for accessibility rights uh and really being recognized and fighting with uh the government and with with these regulations uh to really make it so that they could, uh, be people in our country, which again is like, it's crazy to think of that, but that is the kind of things that a lot of these people had to fight for. And the film is just a really fascinating portrait of that. Uh, it's directed, co-directed, I should say by Nicole Newnham and James Lebrecht. Uh, Lebrecht is actually someone who went to the camp who was involved in the protests, Um, I believe he, I don't know if he is still currently, but he did, he was the, uh, sound designer for the, for, uh, the Berkeley repertory theater, which I had no idea. Like I was like, Oh wait, I think I like, because I knew a little bit about the theater, I think I had heard his name before. And then to realize that like, he was one of the driving forces behind this film was pretty cool for me. Um, but yeah, this is. This is a film that is, uh, like I said, just very inspiring because you see the fight and you see like how um, the film is really good at showing you kind of how it starts in this grassroots and how it sort of builds over time and even gets to a point where they don't realize how big it's going to be and the impact they're going to have until they're at that level. Like it just kind of starts small and keeps building. Um, And there's one really just, I think just really wonderful story that they tell where they're actually um, at this, at this sit-in where they're essentially attempting to lobby uh, the, I believe director of uh, health and human services to consider their demands for accessibility. And it just kind of gets to a point where, like, they—they're not necessarily intending to, uh, keep it sort of keep this sitting extended for several days, but that just is kind of how it ends up happening. They realize, like, this is a fight that they really need to keep fighting. Uh, and at one point, the Black Panthers show up and provide them with free meals, and they guess, like, why are you guys doing this? I'm like, well, we saw what you're doing. We had a lot of respect for the the for this fight that you were. Uh, that you're trying to uh and the the things that you're trying to accomplish and it's just like one of those moments of intersectionality and um solidarity that is really inspiring And i think the film has lots of those kinds of stories um it is on netflix right now i i'm hoping it'll be i think it would be eligible for best documentary feature i would certainly like to see it featured there um but it's just one of those things. I saw this as part of the film club that I'm a part of. We've been meeting virtually, um, and which has been which has been fun. Uh, not maybe not as fun as meeting in person, but uh, you know you you make do with what you have. Uh, but it's a film that I think I would have watched at a certain point. But I'm really glad I got to watch it now because it really was a nice. Um, I think it was a really nice illustration of how activism works and how it has to start small, but can eventually get to this portion where it can actually make legitimate concrete change. Um, And so that is, that is a film that I really did want to spotlight for this, not just because it's a film that came out this year and it's one of the only ones besides the ones we've talked about in the podcast that I've seen this for this year. Um,
2: (laughs) Yeah, I've heard, I've heard really good things about it. Um, I know it's, produced by uh the obamas which is i think Mm -hmm. a a part of why it has the message that it does about the ways in which activism can start out small and and lead to meaningful results because it's very much a part of their brand of politics uh and yeah i've heard it's great and i'm really looking forward to checking it out eventually it's it's on my list uh once i get to more recent things
0: yeah and uh So, yeah, the other the other film that I'll it's I'll be a little more brief on, but I think is, like I said, inspiring in a different way uh, is a Japanese zombie comedy of all things uh, called One Cut (laughs) of the Dead, uh, which is on Shudder. Uh, I did the 30 day free trial and watched a few films that were streaming exclusively on Shudder, which was, uh, you know, very nice of them to do. Um, so this was one of the films that I saw, and I'm really glad I did. I can't say a lot about it because it's act- this
1: actually we we aired this at Nippon a oh, couple really? years ago. Yeah,
0: because it it's actually uh, it got a limited release last year, but it I believe originally premiered in 2017.
1: So um, yeah, yeah, it's very slowly been making the rounds and like and gaining a reputation. Have you for seen itself. it,
0: Noah? Unfortunately, okay. not I yet. I
1: I like it. Uh, I just I've not been able to get yeah, around. To I it. I
0: would definitely recommend it. I can't say a lot about it because part of the pleasure of it is seeing uh, the different layers that become exposed as the film goes along. It's only ninety minutes. It starts off. I'll just say from mm. a premise perspective, it only it starts off uh, with this filmmaking crew. They are trying to make this low budget zombie movie. Uh, and they are attacked by what appear to be actual zombies in the midst of this. That's where the film starts. It gets crazier and nuttier from there. Um, But I think of all the things I was expecting, I wasn't expecting it by the end to be as heartwarming as it is. And I don't think I can get into quite why, but I will say this film is a real celebration of everyone involved in the creation of a work of art, not just the director, every person. And, um, and the impact that can have on uh, not just the audience, but everyone involved in the production. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why it stuck with me. Beyond just the, the humor and the craziness at times, um, it is a true testament to the power of collaboration in the creation of art. And I think that's uh, very inspiring in its own way.
2: Nice. Can I uh, can I go next? And yeah, sure. t- uh, jump off of that point because uh, speaking of something that's heartwarming and touching and like indicative of what we can do as a collective when we go about pursuing art, I, Watched the entire uh, filmography of Pixar uh, since we last spoke. (laughs) Uh, Many of these things I've seen before, but
1: not all of them. Uh, You've been sending, yeah, you've been sending us the updates.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I've seen, now I've seen everything. I've literally, so I subscribe to Disney Plus, and Disney Plus has a nice little thing where one of the sub menus just basically is like Pixar through the years. And it literally in chronological order has every single short and feature film that they've ever produced, except for the, except for the Incredibles two, which is still, uh, currently on Netflix. Uh, but I luckily have Netflix. So I was able to catch that as well. Um, and so I got to watch like everything that Pixar has ever made in order in about two weeks. And that was a really delightful little, like, uh, uh interlude into a pleasant uh place of of emotional catharsis um and i just wanted to like quickly shout out a couple of observations one is that the favorite my my favorite pixar thing that i had never seen before was ratatouille which is a brad bird movie from 2007 about a
1: yeah about a mouse who wait from from that you just saw for the first time and is a new favorite of yours, or was a previous no? Favorite it's of the yours. first
2: time I ever watched it. It was like during that
1: oh my god, well, gosh. it was
2: during that period of like you know between the ages of like 13 and like 16 17 where I just wasn't watching animated films because I was like, No, I'm a grown up, I'm not watching a kid's movie. Uh, <laughs> and so I just it just missed me, and seen. then I have long since heard about how great it is, but. Honestly, because I'm not a huge Brad Bird fan and, like, The Incredibles leave me a little bit cold, which, by the way, upon, also like, upon seen... re-watching them, I will continue to say, like, they're good but not great movies and I just don't get why people go crazy for
1: them. Wait, okay, have you... S- have you seen the iron giant I, like
2: a very long time ago? I don't have like a living memory of seeing the iron giant, but I mean, I love mission okay, impossible. You
1: got you to rewatch the, iron I, giant. I love
2: the mission impossible movie that he directed. So it's not that I hate all Brad <clears> bird <throat> movies, but his work with Pixar never worked for me as well as, as well as other people. So I was always apprehensive about whether Ratitude would be as good as people say. And I'm here to say that it absolutely is. It's really excellent. It's definitely like top five Pixar movies. Uh, and it's just wonderful. Patton Oswald is great. I love what it has to say about, you know, like balancing your obligations to your family and your obligations to your passions. And it's just like a very sweet movie that really spoke to me on a very deep level. So really loved that movie. It's Stella's all time favorite. Movie. I can totally see that. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> wow. Um, Also wanted to say that uh, Finding Nemo, Inside Out, and Coco are all really, really strong highlights upon rewatching. I think that those are all movies that are not necessarily unsung at all, but I just was surprised by how well they they held up when I watched them another (laughs) time. Just like the imagination and the emotion that they are able to pair, it's really like Pixar at its best, in my opinion. And finally, I watched all of the Toy Story movies again, and obviously all of them are great. Uh, I definitely appreciated Toy Story 2 more than the first time that I watched it, Uh, but I still say that Toy Story 3 is the best of of the set for me. It just, like, it really means a lot to me personally. My life and Andy's life overlap in interesting ways, and... (laughs) We are about the same age, so there's that as well. Um, and just like I just think that the story about those, like, just the emotional impact of some of those final moments are just really profound and. I like I've seen that movie a number of times and I fully thought when the trash compactor scene came uh that I was not going to get emotional and then I got the most emotional that I've <laughs> ever gotten watching that scene <laughs> because I guess like something about like uh those toys giving each other that like silent look of of acceptance and yeah. and comm- and like and like solidarity as they face their impending doom was particularly potent during, uh, this, uh, pandemic that we're living through. Uh, so yeah, I just like literally cried so hard. I had to pause the movie when that happened. (laughs) So yeah, love toy story movies. Um, so yeah, Pixar is like, they're definitely much more hit or miss in the last 10 years, uh, which is sad, but the first 10 years or like the first 15 years are just like remarkable at their, how strong that consistency is and what's nice when you kind of condense you know because Pixar movies they get released like once a year once every two years whatever you kind of like it's when a couple of them don't work or when like three out of the last four Pixar movies are not that great it makes it feel like oh man Pixar's in such a slump but when you watch it all in a bulk kind of way you realize that it's like if like this one creative force is making like a near masterpiece every four or five years, that's actually still a pretty good clip. So I'm definitely (laughs) for as many good dinosaurs and cartoons, there are, you know, we still get it inside out nestled in there. By the way, another thing that I learned is that for some ungodly reason, uh, there's like a million cars, shorts that Pixar produced. And Almost all of them star Larry the Cable Guy, and it's, like, a real problem. Uh, I got to get that sweet sweet sweet
1: Larry the Cable Guy. So
2: it, but like truly like there's 3 cars feature films and there's 16 original shorts about cars. So by the time Cars 3 rolled around I was weirdly invested in the conclusion of that story which I mostly didn't like. So <laughs> it definitely oh. like I feel like I've been slowly indoctrinated into the Cars community but begrudgingly because most of the content is really subpar for for Pixar. But that third one is better than I think people say. I think that the third one is actually better than the first one, but I don't care enough to argue that with anybody. So yeah,
1: that was my Pixar (laughs) rewatch. All the fans, jump into your mentions on Twitter. Debate the Cars Um, franchise with me, Alex. Yeah, I think
2: most of the people who really liked the first Cars were like six when they watched it, and they're just like basing off of that memory, but that's fine. Hmm.
1: I was way too old when I saw the first Cars movie and I was like, well, OK, I'm done. It, well, it just it don't got
2: to do this. It's again. It's not a terrible movie. Like the second Cars movie is a terrible movie. The first like this, the second Cars movie is the second one, the one where there's well, agents. it's specifically the Larry the Cable Guy character becomes the main character and accidentally is a secret agent. It's like a bad 80s spy comedy, just like as a cars movie and it's one of those movies where it's just like literally every conflict could be resolved if people just had a single conversation with each other and those just drive me absolutely insane so that was a major problem the first movie (laughs) yeah yeah. yes drives me insane yeah uh the first movie has a different Uh, problem where it's like oh this hotshot needs to get settled down in like a small town in america to learn what like being a person is and i also hate that as like a trope where it's like no like small towns are not this like bastion of like decency where like everybody just becomes a better person if they spend enough time there like that is a myth that we should really get rid of i think
1: uh no i I think we can put that to bed now once Uh and for all so
2: that that is my issue with the first two cars movies but I digress. Overall, the Pixar <laughs> re-watch was very nice. A lot of the shorts were really interesting to watch. Many of them I saw for the first time and and they that's honestly some of the best storytelling that they do or, or in these shorts where that are almost completely dialogue free and and just really rely on the animation and the movement to tell a really complete story in like 6 or 7 minutes and some of them are really striking and and beautiful. So, definitely uh, definitely check out those shorts if you can if you have Disney Plus. Yeah.
0: I was going to ask if there are any, like, if there are any shorts that you would recommend real quick in particular. Uh,
2: So, like, Sanjay's super team, very, very good, very touching, very heartfelt. Uh, Paper, or Piper, I mean, the animation on Piper is just truly incredible. (laughs) uh just like the the verisimilitude of it and just there's also oh there's the blue umbrella which originally aired Mm. in front of monsters university is just like i can't believe that they did it it just it's like it blew my mind that they were capable (laughs) of doing it it's basically just like the story of this of this umbrella who is who has a little face on it and it like it looks like a real umbrella the the whole world looks like the real world you don't see people's faces, but you see, like, they're, like, it's, like, this a cityscape that you're in, but the only animation is that, like, the, the, like, they literally, like, draw, like, with, like, three lines of face on the umbrella, on one of the panels of the umbrella, and then there's, like, the the creatures of the city like mailboxes and gutters and things like that just slightly get a tweaked animated sort of facial composition so it's like if you squint it looks like an animated character but otherwise it looks completely like the real thing uh in the way that mm. like your child's mind might construct in their surroundings and it just is it just was mind-blowing and it's like this sweet little story about this umbrella who meets a girl umbrella and they like fall in love and they want it they don't want to be separated from each other um along like a one as umbrellas exactly do. but the animation is just <laughs> i just it was really really uh mind-blowing so yeah those are some highlights i would say
0: nice all right uh noah did you want to go uh name the other major thing that you watched
1: um <laughs> In this period? Yes. Well, on. So, you know, continuing in the vein of, you know, Alex talking about Pixar movies, on Friday morning, I sat down to watch Malcolm X for the first time. Ah, yes. Seamless transition. (laughs) Well done, sir. Larry the Cable Guy, Spike Lee. All right. (laughs) Two masters of their domain. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Of their respective (laughs) domains. Not saying those domains are. On the same plane or in the same I universe. I don't think but there's uh, any overlap are... in that audience,
2: most likely. But anyway, continue. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, anyway, so the, the inspiration for that was, was so on the one hand, um, I had a tooth pulled last week, so I was going to be home for a couple of days anyway. Um, I was like, oh, it's, I really should watch a movie again. And I happened to catch an article written by Odie Henderson, who is one of the... Film reviewers who will sporadically uh, do articles for com, So I've grown slowly familiar with his writing over the past five years or so. <clears throat> and I noticed that I think someone had shared it on Twitter. Uh, and that was how I... Like like maybe Matt Sites had, had shared it. Um, I forget exactly who. And I thought, oh wait, Odie Henderson. I, I like that guy. Oh, let me see what, he's, what he has to say about Malcolm X. Because um, Malcolm X has been... Uh, for a number of reasons. It, it had been on my radar as, you know, one of the older, you know, classics that uh, I really do need to devote the time to see. But of course, it is a heavy watch because it is literally, it's almost three and a half hours. Um, and this was this was in the early 90s when like films were just not doing that. Uh, and he wrote an article in honor of the, it, it's it's not the 25th anniversary of the film's release, but I think it was the 25th anniversary of the film's dvd or video release or something like that um but anyway it was it was a it was an anniversary like look back on malcolm x and the the brunt of the article was uh watching malcolm x now reminds us of how nothing has changed and it was a really great article really great bit of film journalism and it also got me thinking like ooh, you know I think this is going to be my next uh, films for the Trump years article, because I've been meaning for literally like three quarters of a year to get back to that. Um, And I've just not found the time, but Malcolm X is one of the movies I had on my broad list of anyway of films that I was uh, thinking of using for that. Um, So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to be home anyway. I'm going to watch the movie and then I'll, uh, I'll finally get back into my, um, films for the trump years series uh and i'm not I'm, I'm not into the writing part yet so it might be a bit until i get that posted but i did uh i did watch the movie on friday have either of you guys seen well, it I think you, Justin, I, you yes have. Talk- i have
0: and i've actually talked about it on this podcast i think uh maybe a few <laughs> times at this point i don't really? know like uh yeah no, just, that's correct <laughs> just to, i yeah i love that movie unequivocally it's my it's along with do the right thing it's my, my t- those are those are my two favorite spike lee films um it's also probably yeah. my favorite biopic i mean i
1: i yeah no it's it's i did do do the right thing for my films for the trump year segment um so i wasn't specifically thinking of doing another spike lee film for it but then i thought well the second one i did in that series was selma which was ava duvarnay's um incredible biopic of mark well i don't know if it I don't know if it counts as a biopic, but it's it's a film about Martin Luther King jr., and then I thought you know it would actually be kind of fitting if I were to also do a film focused on Malcolm X because in in so many ways, some of them accurate, some of them more people uh now projecting onto the past like there is this perception of oh, they were polar opposites and they stood on you know opposite ends of the civil rights debate, and that that's only that's only true in, in specific limited senses, but it doesn't, it it doesn't capture the whole complexity of, of these two really just incredibly titanic figures of, um, 20th century America. Um, yes, I figured, you know, doing, doing one on Malcolm X would be, uh, would, would be a fitting add on to the series. Have you seen the movie, Alex? I
2: have not, but it is on my list, uh, to catch up with. Um, right now I have, I have, I, when all of this started, I put together a list of 250 films that I wanted to watch, uh, yeah, and, I'm, and I'm, about 60, I'm about 60 films in, so I haven't gotten to Malcolm X yet. I'm trying to go roughly chronologically, so I'm, all right, yeah, so I'm not quite in the 80s yet, of, 90s uh, yet. We
1: need eight more months of lockdowns, <laughs> well, <roughly. laughs> we'll, we'll see how long it takes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is – I mean, it's a biopic film. Uh, And really a biopic in like, uh, like, like the Gandhi level sense of the term. This is a huge three and a half hour epic that goes through like almost the entire adult life of Malcolm X um, and starts with his, you know, when he was a young adult, just sort of working odd jobs and involved in a lot of petty crimes and just not, you know, not having a direction at all. Um, through to his conversion to Islam and to when he became a very, very, very passionate advocate for the Nation of Islam and the figurehead or the founder of the Nation of Islam, which is Elijah Muhammad, which is its own uh, very big, complex, thick history. And then his his sort of his continued uh, mental and intellectual and emotional um, evolution sort of beyond uh, the place he was in when he first joined the Nation of Islam and to the point where he began to uh, fall into conflict with the Nation of Islam uh, which direct- led pretty directly to his assassination um, in was it 65 or 66? Oh, that's a good question. You google that just on my computer's been slow.
2: It's All right. sometime in the late 60s. 65
1: okay 65 it, it wasn't 68 no because uh, it was it was a, a while before martin luther king uh jr was assassinated uh yeah so he was it was one of many so many prominent figures um both white black and otherwise in american politics and society in the 60s who you know fell victim to the really especially like looking back now like it's it's like people have really tried to forget just how violent the sixties was and how violent a lot of the political and social upheavals got in, like in terms of literal blood in the streets. Um, Yeah. So he he ultimately did fall victim to that. And it's, it's, we we were talking about this yesterday, Justin, it's just, it's so incredibly comprehensive in how it it takes us through several major shifts in his thinking and in his, personality and how he approaches civil rights how he approaches politics how he approaches um, religion and faith because he was like his activism was every bit as um, religiously inspired as martin luther king jr's was Uh, with the with the big difference being of course that being a muslim he was viewed as even more out there and weird and exotic uh, to the rest of white and mainstream america at the time uh, and how he still, how he kept, he kept finding new ways to to understand the world, to understand race, to understand what role he could or should um, or would play in uh, in this great struggle that they were all involved in at the time. And it's just, it's an unbelievable. I mean, like you said, just it is definitely one of the best biopics I've ever seen. Like so many biopics can be. You know interesting and or about interesting people and important but ultimately end up being kind of rote from a cinematic point of view and aren't necessarily like you would say well you know it is a fascinating person it's a fascinating story so yeah you can watch the biopic and get an idea of what they were like but you can't necessarily say oh well the movie is visionary for its costumes or its cinematography or like its editing style um <clears throat> But this is one of those biopics that is a great film on that level. There's so many um, people who were from the usual collaborator, collaborators that Spike Lee worked with um, throughout, the, throughout the years. And, and uh, a lot of various African-American filmmakers and artists that I've only become more aware of um, in recent years. Like Terrence Blanchard did the music for this movie. And he was nominated for the very first time for an Oscar for Black Klansman. Uh, last year or the year before? No, last year. Um, when he did the music for that, uh, Ruth Carter was the costume designer, and she became uh, a groundbreaking Oscar winner within the, the costume design field for Black Panther two years ago. Uh, and also on, on top of this, this is one of the early like big uh, Oscar-nominating roles for Denzel Washington. Um, that really established him as a major player. And then Spike Lee's most recent film, Black Landsman, was one of the first big roles for Denzel Washington's son. Um, so it's, it's, I think, coming coming seeing this movie so soon after Black Landsman came out had there were a lot of interesting parallels to see like the then and now uh, in Spike Lee's filmography. But it's just it is an inc- it's an incredibly vibrant film. the The colors of the film are really lush, uh, especially in the early scenes when it's focusing on the very materialistic lifestyle that Malcolm X was leading at this time, back when he co- referred to himself as uh, Red and was involved with all sorts of petty criminals, one of whom very memorably is played by Spike mm-hmm. Lee. Um, there's I, I could do a whole listicle of like notable Spike Lee cameos <laughs> in his own movies. Um, he's one of those directors who I really do enjoy the way he inserts himself into these movies, whether or not he's like the main character like can do the right thing or just a very notable side character um like in this movie where he's sort of a reflection of what malcolm x was and then reappears later to kind of show the contrast yeah uh, between how malcolm x was earlier and then how he's changed whereas spike lee's character shorty is still very much the same person uh, and doesn't really know what to do with this malcolm person that he's now encountering um because he walks in and he's and he's uh preaching to uh, a nation of islam gathering and then he goes out with him for coffee later and he's like you can drop the pre-track now like it's me it's shorty and malcolm's like well, this is me now and shorty's like like he, like he like he can't he mentally can't comprehend it um there's so many great movies uh moments like that throughout the film um it, it is like you know it is a heavy watch it's it's a very thematically it's very it's uh I mean, any any movie dealing with this subject matter is just is hard to get through because of how painful it is, you know. Uh, but it is this is one of those movies like Selma, like the the documentary Thirteenth, uh, like Do the Right Thing. It's one of those movies where it is worth uh, it is worth sticking through to the end, uh, because this is a movie that is thought provoking in all the right ways and has a lot to say about th- the way in which our our capacity for casual cruelty, you know, keeps leading people to destroy the best of us. You know? Hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's it's it, it's a great film, top to bottom, start to finish. It is yeah, no, for, for me it's on par with Do the Right Thing as one of Spike Lee's best movies. It's it might be my per Yeah, I think I think so far this would be my personal favorite Denzel Washington performance. Um Although I would, in, I've I've not seen anywhere close to all of Denzel Washington's yeah. filmography, so that take take that take that with a grain of salt. I think I mentioned to you yesterday, Justin. We were just chatting about this. Um, if I had one criticism of the film, it would be I wish it had I wish it had even more Angela Bassett. <laughs> than it does um, that's my that's my criticism of every
2: film, just for the record. literally <laughs> every
1: film. Like, not enough Angela Bassett. Zero stars. What's, go- what's going on with this movie? Down. She's not
0: even in the cast. What the hell happened there? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Truly, the help. More like, uh, I can't think of a joke now. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think because you know, especially you know, and I'm looking back in movies like this, I do try to pay more attention to how the women characters are portrayed and treated and utilized in the film, and I find her role to be really important uh, in terms of ground in terms of grounding Malcolm as a person, especially because she's the person who. Uh, at least within the context of the film it's been a while since I've read um a biography of Malcolm X so I don't know the, how accurate this is she's the one who kinds of who kind of opens his who, who starts to open his eyes to how the nation of Islam is kind of subtly playing him or just sort of you know going around his back and doing stuff that's you know kind of morally crappy uh, and that is what like like stuff like that is what led to his break with Elijah Muhammad um later in his life and in the movie it's Angela Bassett who really kind of forces him to say no honey stop you're smarter than this look at what's going on you know yeah this you know the, the nation is not being straight with you they're not you know they're they're throwing you out to give these great speeches but that, then they're going around behind your back and telling people oh he's you know he's a big you know Malcolm's a big blowhard he's not important he's not you know he's not he's not worth paying attention to um i think we we discussed as well the I've never seen a phone call as romantic as the scene where Malcolm X calls her up just to propose, and even though they're not even in the same room, but the romantic tension is just it, it it's palpable, yeah uh and that and that's just solely conveyed through their voices and their faces as they're talking to each other on the phone, so
0: yeah. It's I mean yeah it's a wonderful it's a wonderful film it's incredibly uh it's fully dimensional in a way that I feel like so many biopics are not and uh, yeah I agree what
1: Yeah it's not it's not pure hagiography no. it's not just we're going to sit here and worship this person for 3 hours who was perfect Quite in the opposite. like it is not yeah. that
0: Yeah um yeah so <laughs> I'm going to go a little bit I think what I'm going to do with uh, for like my next uh, bit of my bit, my next segment is, I'm just going to kind of go quickly through some films from last year that I think were overlooked, um, and because I've been watching so much good stuff lately, um, but here's a few that I thought uh, deserve a little more attention than they got. One is uh, Sunset, the most recent film from László Nemes, uh, who of course Alex, uh, you will remember, uh, was the director of Son of Saul. Um,
1: a film yes. that you and I both love.
0: I I think. Have you seen that one as well, Noah? Ooh.
1: Oh, no! Okay. But if it's from the guy who made *Son of Saul*, uh, I'm oh, okay. Very so interested. you have.
0: So you've seen *Son of Saul*, just not this one. Okay, gotcha. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I do I don't. I noticed that this film *Sunset* got a lot less attention. It was not as well reviewed as *Son of Saul*. Um, I can maybe understand to a certain extent why it's a much more abstract film than Son of Saul in a way, but it uses a lot of similar techniques. It's got a great performance from Julie Jacob in the uh, title role, or the title role, in the main role. Um, he, sorry guys. He plays he is, the sunset. It is the, spot. <laughs> he plays the sunset. Uh, yes. Uh, I also want to spotlight in Fabric, which is the latest film from Peter Strickland, who did The Duke of Burgundy. Uh, another film that, uh, you and I, or, all three of us actually enjoyed. Sorry, I'm forgetting who's, who of us has seen. Uh, certain films here, Um, but uh, his latest film, In Fabric, uh, which is about a killer dress and has uh, references to uh, old-fashioned catalogs and Italian giallo movies. Uh, It's crazy and pretty awesome. Um, I would definitely recommend that. Uh, Diane, which is a small-scale character study from Kent Jones, who up to this point was probably best known as a film programmer as well as a documentarian. This is his first sort of narrative feature film starring Mary Kay Place in one of the best performances of the year, playing a woman who... um, is basically using her altruism, helping at soup kitchens, attempting to uh, get her son's life back on track, who is a a sort of uh, relapsing drug addict, uh, and using this to really stave off a lot of the regrets and her own mortality. Uh, just a really fascinating portrait, with, like I said, just an incredible lead performance. Um, and the last one I did want to spotlight from uh, these kinds of films would be uh, a film that is on Netflix, which uh, everyone can see if you have Netflix, and I'd highly recommend it. It's a film called The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open. Uh, And I think as we there was a lot of talk last year about 1917, the way that film uses long takes and how impressive they are. I think we're going to have that conversation. We should also have it with regard to this movie, because the way this film uses long takes to really uh, create this emotional trajectory for both characters in this film, um, where you can see from beginning to end just. The kinds of changes and transformations that happen to them in the span of, you know, about an hour and a half, um, is really incredible. The film is about uh, an indigenous woman it takes place in Vancouver. It's one of the rare films where Vancouver does in fact play itself, um, and. <laughs> 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 uh, takes uh, is with uh, two two women one woman who has is basically escaping a domestic abuse situation this other woman she doesn't know finds her standing kind of like almost like catatonic and barefoot in the street she helps kind of bring her into her home and try to figure out the next steps um, but it's really a, a fascinating sort of uh, just collision of two very different characters from very different walks of mm. life. Um, with very different ideas about what uh, Rosie, the, the 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 woman who has encountered this situation, what she should do, um, the film is really great at making you understand both characters' perspectives and making you slightly frustrated, wishing they could see each other's perspectives, but also understanding why they might not be able to, Um, which is very impressive, I think, just from a writing and directing standpoint. It is uh, co-directed to uh, two filmmakers, Kathleen Hepburn and Eldemaya Tellfeathers, who also stars in the movie as the woman who finds uh, this other woman and is one of the major characters. Uh, So those are films that I think deserve a lot more attention than they Mm. got. Uh, I think they're definitely worth your time. They are uh, very, uh, I think they're very emotional films that are use uh, interesting and devastating performances to really um, bring you into bring you into their respective worlds. And uh, I would highly recommend all of them. So uh, let's talk about uh, any any last films that we want to talk about here. Uh, Did you have anything else for us to, to did you have anything else for us, Alex?
2: I, well, I do. I have two more like sections that I wanted to get through. The first I'll okay. do is like a quick hit, just like you. Uh, but this, instead of underseen movies from last year, uh, these are uh, five films that almost everyone has seen and all agree are great. Uh, these are my five favorite things that I saw on the Criterion channel uh, since the quarantine started. Mm. Uh, they are Citizen Kane, which was obviously directed by Orson Welles uh so much better than I expected it to be like it has this weird (laughs) reputation of being technically very impressive but like kind of boring and I did not find that to be true at all I thought like all of the performances in it were incredible like Orson Welles is just like truly outstanding in the role and it was just very captivating and like very almost like like very like mainstream pop culture kind of like uh, accessible as well and I just loved it. I can't believe the reputation that it has. It feels really unearned.
1: Yeah, I feel I feel people tend to either either be disappointed when they see it because they had like mass way like massively different expectations, or people love it even more than they thought they <laughs> would. You know? Yeah,
2: it's like well and like one of the things that I love most about storytelling is like this idea of Looking at the same story from different vantage points and different perspectives, and this movie does that so well. And that's, I mean, that it's on me for not realizing that that was a component of the film prior to watching it. But I loved that about it, where like you're trying to find the truth of who this man was, and you only have the ways in which he impacted other people to judge that by, and he impacted other people by in such varying degrees that they have wholly different impressions of like who he was as a person as a result and that and like the truth is somewhere in the middle of it and that is what's the most interesting part of it and and orson welles just plays all of those versions of that man so compelling that there feels like there is some sort of a consistency there even when the perspectives are Are very different so I just I really loved the movie which is like it's considered like the best film of all time so I guess it's silly to be like I'm so underrated classic but like I kind of feel like it's weirdly underrated (laughs) um another movie that surprised me uh was Rashomon which I know Justin talked about a few months ago on our show uh and even still, I was like, it has this reputation. Uh, this was actually a funny thing because this has the reputation about like really tackling like what is the truth of a situation based on perspective. And in my opinion, I that like that had me set up for something similar to what, uh, to what Citizen Kane does. And in fact, it's really a question more of like of memory and even more deeply about narrative and like why we spin the narratives that we do and in order mm. to make us the, the potential uh, hero or tragic victim of our own stories. And that I really, really liked. And I thought that was just like the way that they tackled that question. It's It's ultimately like so many movies, so many great films, about storytelling more than anything else. And I just loved that about it. Um, and of course it has tremendous performances across the board. It's a small cast and like everyone just like nails it. And just like that scene at the end in the rain with the monks, it just like totally wrecked me. So i like really loved that movie. Um, another movie, uh, man with a movie camera, which is oh, from yes. Russia from an, uh, a century ago, literally a uh, silent film. It's literally... Poetry in Motion is the best way that I could describe it. And it just really blew me away. Uh, Eight and a yep. Half, the Fellini masterpiece. Another one. Uh, <clears throat> it's just insane to me how influential that film is. Like, I it touches so many of my favorite films just in the way that it's, like, about this charismatic narcissist who's exploring his own narcissism, which is, like, obviously a potent theme in the works that I like uh for whatever reason <laughs> um <laughs> I like and, and it just like and the metatextual aspect of it and just everything about it 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 was this of all of the films was exactly what I was hoping it would be and I wasn't surprised at all except in how good it was even knowing how much I was uh, primed to like it uh <laughs> really really like I mean just like really makes me look back at other films that i loved in like a whole new light like especially like the almodovar movie that i watched last year which just has it it's basically just a remake of this movie in a lot of ways like schenectady new york has a lot of elements of it uh like all that jazz is like another attempt to remake this movie it's just it's really really impressive to see like how many filmmakers try to tackle this and like what it says about about that film and about being a filmmaker, you know? Um, And then the last one that I wanted to spotlight from Criterion is uh, Panther Panchali, which is the first film in the Apu trilogy uh, by uh, Sadyachet (laughs) Ray. Um, This film is incredible. I actually, it like crept up on me. I thought it was very, very strong when I first watched it a month ago, and I have not been able to get it out of my head. It still is there, Mm. and it still just, like, lingers in just the most beautiful way. And to know that this movie which is just such an all-time classic and it's just so beautiful and it's all about just like nature and about life and about this family and about the world and it just like it's really really tremendous and it was it was Ray's first film which is just truly insane he was he had no practical training he made it as a passion project on the weekends while he was at his day job during the week and it just is it's a incredible all-time classic film that is literally just like snuck into my subconscious and won't leave in a delightful way so (laughs) definitely I'm very excited to watch the uh, I have three more of his films on my list to catch up on the other two Apu films and then the music room and I'm just really excited to watch all of them based on this incredibly impressive uh debut
0: yeah, those are some those are some great films. Like some of them, I am really excited to check out at some point in my life. Like I know that sooner rather than later, I'm gonna see something like Eight and a Half in Pather Panchali. Um, but yeah, Citizen Kane. Like I feel like you know that really, I think you really hit the nail on the head with it of like its perception versus the actual experience of watching the film. Um, I remember going into it thinking like, oh, this is like not only knowing that it had this like reputation within uh the sort of, within the film community that I just didn't feel like it was going to be able to match but I also was like for some reason I just I almost like didn't want to like it which is not a good way to go into any movie uh and it's a testament to the film that I was like oh shit this is a masterpiece <laughs> like I just I just really like it really upended all any kind of preconceived notions I had about it. I was deeply involved emotionally in its story um, and how sad it was. And yet just and felt like so much of the technical um, innovations that it made, which are, you know, should should not be understated, um, were so in service to the story it was telling and just that combination was just like I was like oh this is a major work of cinema beyond just the technical like it is just it is just a great movie in general by any standard by which you would judge any kind of movie
2: yeah absolutely I mean that was definitely my impression as well and it's just the the reputation is so weird like even after I watched it I like looked up some reviews and there were a lot of people like oh it was so boring I'm just like what movie did you watch yeah <laughs> believe me
0: there are films from that year that I can think of that are much more boring that may have won best picture anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, that, those are, yeah, I, I can't, uh, I think you've got some really great viewing habits. That's all I can say. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so to pivot from there, talking about some great films, I want to talk about some of the best films that I saw uh, in addition to some ones I've named, Um, the one I'm going to start with, which is actually two movies, one that I was revisiting and another, which is a remake of that first film. The films are Gloria and Gloria Bell, uh, both directed by Sebastian Lelio, a a Chilean filmmaker who uh, is probably best known to people, uh, for winning best foreign language film for a fantastic woman, another film I'd recommend. Um, and it was really great to revisit Uh, the original Gloria and recall the things that I loved about it, realized that there were a lot of things I didn't remember about it. Um, The I I mean, as much as I, you know, I loved Paulina Garcia in that role. uh, I loved it even more this time Uh, and seeing Gloria Bell right after was a fascinating experience because there are a lot of things that these films have in common. Um, Some of the shot selections are similar, but there are little changes, little modifications that I would make. I think I likened the changes almost to like uh, a musician doing kind of like a new version of a familiar song um, and sort of accenting different things, uh, putting new emphasis on others. Like it just it's this it doesn't just feel like a shot for shot remake like I was maybe fearing, um, there are enough little changes. I actually think the performance and the uh, nuances of the character herself are a bit different in in either version. Um, there's a similar vivacity to both characters, uh, but there's something a little more to me. I found like a little more mysterious and um, about Julianne Moore's performance, which was really compelling, but like again in kind of a new way. Um, I think when you watch both, watching both films together and watching the new version, I was like, okay, how are they going to do this one scene? Like what, like what little changes will be here? And most times I found it really worked for the story they were telling, even if it was like slightly different from what was done in the original version. Um, I think John Turturro is a really inspired casting choice, uh, to play the male romantic lead. Um, he's quite different from Sergio Hernandez in the first one. He's um. I think, a little more shy in some ways, uh, but just as passionate. And there's just a real just the the arc of this character, I just think, is something that's so um, so lovable to me, feels like something that I'll have with me as like. Uh, Just a story that I think is so compelling in itself. And I could see multiple versions of this story being told. Uh, But it's really fascinating to see a filmmaker kind of take what they've done before and kind of find little nuances, find a new way to tell the story, ground it more in Los Angeles as opposed to Santiago, Chile. Um, And yet keep some of the same things, uh, which I found really amusing. There is a dancing skeleton uh, marionette that features in both films, and there's no explanation as to why there is this kind of focus on it. It's just kind of there, and yet it works so well with the tone of the movie, and particularly her frame of mind at that point. Um, And I just, so I guess what I'm saying is I love the little changes. I also love the things that they kept. Um, And it's just a great story about a woman in this particular moment of her life. Uh, I think by the end, in both versions, coming into this um, love of herself and exactly who she is, uh, whatever the consequences of that may be. And, uh, you know, maybe another inspiring movie of the the, uh, other inspiring films (laughs) I've named
2: yeah i love i loved gloria bell when i saw it last year it was one of my favorite films of the year i have not seen the original so i was always very curious because i knew you had seen the original really loved the original i was always curious how this remake would play for you and how the julianne moore performance would work um so i love hearing that it works just as well in interesting and slightly different and slightly similar ways so i'm I'm glad that to finally hear this i've been waiting for this contrast from you for like a good like (laughs) nine months i think so
0: (laughs) um and the other film that uh is probably my favorite probably it is my favorite film that i've been watching in quarantine it's uh long day's journey into night the film from be gone um yes it's i know this is i believe was like your number five film of last year is that heck did i get the right number Certainly your uh, it's definitely 10. in my
2: top 10 yeah okay. it's definitely in my top 10
0: um this is a a feast for the senses uh i think it's it's cliche to say that a film is an experience as opposed to just a movie but if there's any movie that's going to fit the description this is definitely one of them uh i was aware almost um, i'm sure you know many other people have had this reaction too, where I was almost like watching a new film language being invented the way this film uh deals with memories specifically and dreams I just found so compelling um there's a way in which it has this almost like um it almost is like on this seesaw between sort of more surreal and grounded realism from moment to moment. And I guess the, the the only thing I could think to equate it to would be like when you're in the midst of a dream, uh, and then later your recollection of it. In the moment, it probably seems much more grounded and real than it than of course it is. Uh, then as you recall it, that's kind of when it starts to ta- to take on more of that surreal quality. So this is almost like a film version of that. Um, it's about this uh, this. It's about this gentleman who goes back to his hometown and has these flashbacks to this woman that he met there who was uh, sort of connected to a criminal underworld. Um, And this is sort of about him maybe reuniting with her. The film is like very ambiguous about what's actually happening, what's inside his head. Uh, It culminates in this just, you know, tour de force, um, long take, uh, almost an hour long that I believe was shot in three D. Unfortunately, the version I watched was on Canopy, um, so I did not get that that same effect. Um, but I'm, I'd be really compelled to watch this again, maybe with that with with that addition, um, and maybe see a film that does three D well <laughs> would be would be pretty cool. <laughs> um, but even so, the way that whole scene works um, just is is just incredible. Like it's just it's incredibly from a technical standpoint. Um, from an emotional standpoint, the, the journey in just in that one moment and how everything before that is almost feels like it's leading up to that. Um, it's hard. It's a hard film to describe. It has visuals in it that I don't think I'll ever forget. There's this great sort of recurring scene transition where he'll go from the camera will kind of either go up into a ceiling or down into a floor and then form the ceiling or the floor of the next scene. And I just feel like that kind of transition gives you an idea of how, for this character, memory and dream and reality are all overlapping, um, and is maybe a more realistic depiction of how we actually see the world than necessarily the world that we live in. And uh, for all those reasons, I you know maybe that makes it seem overly technical, overly uh, you know um, just. You know, maybe that doesn't make it seem as interesting as it actually is um, but all that just really to me was I think at the end of the day it just came down to this is an experience I don't think I'll ever maybe see again maybe from this you know who maybe from this filmmaker at some point in the future who knows but I just can't think of another film experience I've had quite like this and for that reason alone I think it's one of the best films of last year
2: yeah, it I just checked it. It was my number 4 of last year actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I, I completely <laughs> I completely agree with everything that you're saying. I admire you for uh attempting to talk about it because it really defies words and it defies uh language. It uses the visual language of memory and dream and cinema and all to mesh with each other in a way that is just so unbelievable honestly like I remember the first like half hour 45 minutes of the movie I was like what am I even watching like it was really hard to grab onto. I really recommend people like hanging with it because it just eventually it just starts to make an emotional sense that just causes everything to fall into place and that's before the like 60 minute uh long take dream sequence yeah. that happens like that once that kicks in then it just goes to this whole other level where it's just like It's just it's just an incredible cinematic experience. There's really no other way to put it. And yeah, the, the idea of using 3D to enhance a dream sequence like that is really fascinating. Like that's an actual artistic choice instead of just like layering 3D on top of things just to add another dimension to this to this screen like i i love that idea and i'm and i am also sad that i had to watch it on streaming and couldn't see it in that in that way but um maybe one day this definitely seems like one of those movies that will be playing in an art house repertoire theater theater sometime in the future so hopefully we'll we'll maybe be able to even share that experience together because i would definitely rewatch watch oh, it that
0: would be uh, fantastic
2: i it's really it's it's a masterpiece there's really no other way of putting it 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 just, it defies description.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, did you, so there were a few more films that I think you wanted to spotlight as well, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so there's just one last section of my to-do list. Um, (laughs) As you know, and Followers of our of our uh <laughs> of our podcast know by now. I'm a big fan of the Blank Check podcast, and their current director is George Miller. And so hmm. I spent about two weeks combing through George Miller's complete filmography, and I've seen all of his works. And his filmography is fully insane. Uh, I don't think that people realize how completely bananas it is, <laughs> because <laughs> his career arc is just like unlike anyone else's he makes the first Mad Max movie as basically like a like a glorified student film it's like fully independently produced he makes it like he is a many people might not know this as well I learned it uh, during this experience he is an actual medical doctor um, and he decided to make his first film after completing med school and he kind of like helped fund that first Mad Max movie basically like with him and his like doctor friends like got together and like scrunched up enough budget to to make this movie um Did and it not like is very wow. yeah and it's like a very kind of like it's very low budget it it has an amateurish quality to it but also like a rawness to it that is really captivating and you completely see how it could cause this kind of international sensation. But it is uh, very different from the other Mad Max movies that will follow because it actually exists in a world that is recognizably our world, which was a surprise. Um, but so you go into that, and then in, and then he follows that up three years later with Mad, with Mad Max to The Road Warrior, which becomes an international sensation. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like everything that Mad Max was doing, but like times ten. Uh, in terms of like really like bringing in this like hardcore action and like it and like transitioning away from like a quasi dystopia to an apocalyptic yeah. wasteland. Right. Um, and it just is like this raw action. And it's a really interesting film to watch if you have seen Fury Road, but not the Road Warrior, because the Road Warrior is very much like a proto Fury Road, and in, in many ways, uh, the lineage is strong between the two, um, and so then he does that, and then three years later he makes, uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, which is a very interesting, uh, <laughs> like, uh, swing that, like, hits in some ways and not as well in other ways, and so you're like, okay, he's the Mad Max guy, right? Uh, he makes these, like, hardcore R-rated action movies with cars, so, of course, the next movie he makes is The Witches of Eastwick, uh, which is a movie about three middle-aged women uh, in uh, the New England area who learn that they have uh, magical powers when they accidentally conjure the devil in the form of jack nicholson and then uh they all live in a mansion for a while and have an incredible like incestuous orgy of a relationship until uh, they realize that there's downsides to being in that sort of relationship with the devil and then it kind of goes from there (laughs) it's it's like a really insane like uh campy comedy like super funny uh It's uh, based on a John Updike book, which is also crazy. Um, And it's just so like not what you're expecting. Uh, But like if you're watching it in the context of George Miller, like there's very George Miller-y things in that movie that are interesting. But it's it's like such an insane performance by Jack Nicholson. He's so good. Uh, And the sex and gender politics of it feel very, very contemporary uh, and very interesting to watch through a modern lens. Cher uh, is incredible in it. Susan Sarandon is incredible in it. Michelle Pfeiffer is incredible in it. It's just like such a stacked cast. Um, And then so he, so he's, so now he's like a studio guy, right? He's making like an action comedy. Okay. So what does he do next? He makes Lorenzo's oil, which is a incredibly depressing, like unflinching story about, uh, real, a real true life story about a poor, poor young boy who has this really awful disease where his brain cannot process certain fatty acids, and as a result, slowly, uh, kind of deteriorates. Um, and you follow his parents, played by Susan Sarandon and Nick Nolte, as they search for a cure and fight against the medical establishment in order to advocate for their kid. And it's really gripping and it's really, really agonizing in a lot of ways. And it's very, very operatic in other ways. And it's just totally like you totally see the doctor side of him in it. And it's like very interesting Mm -hmm. from that perspective. But and Susan Sarandon is giving a tremendous performance and Nick Nolte is playing an actual Italian man and Doing an actual Italian accent and it's very odd, but the movie is so good that you don't care. Um, And so, so, so he does that, right? And then, so then, what's the next logical choice? Oh, it's it's to produce the first Babe movie, uh, which he chooses not to direct, but he is he wrote the script for and was very hands on in the in the production. Uh, And then he followed that up by directing and writing Babe: Pig in the City, which is a fully bananas movie that. Anybody who has not seen or hasn't watched as an adult really should, because it is so wild and insane and just like dark, like really, really dark. Uh, Just like a lot of existential dread in that movie. And I'm not exaggerating. Uh, (laughs) And and so then he does that. And then he makes two movies about uh, singing penguins, one of which is inexplicably bad and one of which is inexplicably good um, in the form of Happy Feet and Happy Feet 2. Uh, and then he, and then of course, so he follows that up with Mad Max Fury Road, you know, which is the (laughs) pinnacle of his career. As far as I'm concerned, it's truly an insane movie. I learned, uh, I watched the documentary that there's like a 45 minute documentary on the making of that movie that I watched on the, on the digital copy that I bought. And, um, they mentioned that (laughs) the, that uh the editor, who is also his wife, uh she had 470 hours of material that she had to edit together. Insane. And it apparently it took her three months just to watch all the footage before she could even start editing. <laughs> so like it's truly insane that this movie exists. I like the the interviews with the cast, like especially Charlize and and Tom Hardy. <laughs> are just very very funny because it's so clear that they hated making this movie and they hated each other and it was awful it was a terrible experience and they just like in in like pretty much every possible level like physically emotionally just like intellectually just like they fully despised it and now it's a masterpiece so they have to be like I guess it was all worth it (laughs) question mark but uh yeah, it's an incredible movie. I mean, everybody knows that it's incredible, but if you haven't watched it, you should see it. So, yeah, the George Miller uh career arc is one of the most bizarre career arcs that I've ever seen. Uh but it has a sort of uh anarchic like uh sort of like <laughs> uh existential truth to it that makes <laughs> that makes it all cohere in a in a very unexpected way. Huh. Yeah, I
0: I mean, that was the craziest thing to me when I was sort of because I remember before I saw Fury Road, I watched I just watched like the first three Mad Maxes. And then it was only as I was exploring more about him, I was like looking at all the things he directed. And I was like, wait, he did Happy Feet and (laughs) Babe Pig in the City. What? And Lorenzo's Oil. It was just yeah, it was it was mind blowing, to say the least.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's really crazy. And. Like, when you say that he's directed these kids' movies, you're like, why would he... Why? But, like, these kids' movies are so not just kids' movies. Like, Bay Pig in the City has some of the best action sequences I've ever seen, just for the record. <laughs> um, and it, as I said, it is just, like, extremely bleak in a lot of aspects, like, grappling with the cruelty of humanity and, like, the inanity of the world around us. Um, <laughs> and, like the the first happy feet movie is just fully bizarre um it has like multiple sequences that just like there's like the story resets every like 15 minutes or so so there's like no narrative flow or consistency to it but there is like a whole sequence where the main penguin gets kidnapped and brought to a zoo uh where he is then like faces the existential dread of like not be, like being separated from his parent from his family and not being able to like be with his community anymore and like being gawked at by these creatures who he thinks are aliens who can't understand him until he starts dancing and then they do and then they save everybody and they solve the overfishing problem like because all of the the penguins dance and it's just so bananas and by the way the people in the movie are actual people like the animated film has live action people in it so so weird what (laughs) so weird and then the second movie which is actually like surprisingly not bad uh has this whole crazy subplot where um matt damon and brad pitt play these krills who are like microscopic organisms right that like whales eat um and brad pitt that they're in a they are in a gay relationship with each other there's no other way of putting it uh they're like they are lovers and uh brad pitt decides to break off from the herd when he realizes that their lives are empty and and a lie because they are only there to eat to be eaten and he decides to go on this quest of becoming an apex predator, um, and they and he just has like a mini like <laughs> nihilistic existential breakdown throughout the course of the film, and it's just like the B plot, totally separate from the rest of the movie, which is about like these penguins who have been separated from their whole family and their entire uh, community because an ice because global warming has caused an iceberg to like trap them into a and into like a cavern i should say and so like the entire penguin community aside from this one family that we've been watching uh is on the verge of uh starving to death because they can't be saved and they really like go dark with it so yeah like there's just like crazy crazy stuff happening in every george miller movie i want to just briefly read out this quote from Babe pig in the city. So that way you know that I'm not messing around and I'm not exaggerating. Uh so it this is the narrator speaking. Babe in this sequence is being chased by these like ravenous security dogs who are like trying to murder him. Uh and so the narrator says, "Something broke through the terror, flickering fragments of his short life, the random events that delivered him to this." This moment of annihilation. As terror gave way to exhaustion, Babe turned to his attacker, his eyes filled with one simple question. And then Babe says, why? (laughs) So, and like, truthfully, like, that's me in like 2020, for real. Like, that is I really, really related to that feeling. Uh, So yeah, that's... (laughs) Just like if you don't believe me, just go on the IMDb quote page and you see like there's a whole character that is like a pink poodle who is just like been abused by her owners and just like is truly just like uh like a like a sex worker is the only way of putting it. He, she is a sex worker who has been used and and thrown away and now lives on the streets. And it's like literally like it's this is a kid's movie. So it's just really wild um at one point one of the dogs get like it gets into uh, like tries to protect his his friends from this like SWAT team of uh, of police officers who are trying to capture all of the animals And he gets like thrown from the truck and you get a flash of him in doggy heaven where he can walk again. Because, by the way, he's in a doggy wheelchair. Um, And then like Babe pulls him out of heaven and he's like back to life. It's such a weird movie. (laughs) You have to everybody should watch Babe Pig in the City. I mean, Mad Max Fury Road is the best movie that he made. But Babe Pig in the City is the most inexplicable movie that he made. So like, (laughs) definitely check out both of them.
0: I mean, the way you're describing, like the way you describe Bay Pay in the city, almost makes it sound like the climactic, just insanity of like the Blues Brothers or something. <laughs> like that—that's how it's sounding to me. <laughs> I
2: well, I haven't <laughs> seen the Blues Brothers, so I couldn't oh, say. that. Okay. But... <laughs>
0: <laughs> but wow, okay, that that is fun. So I have a lot to look forward to then. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's like. In this moment of our like collective despair, the George Miller fil- filmography really leaves a lot uh, to dig into. I really think that this is probably the best time anyone could ever watch those movies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if nothing else from us has come through on this episode, that is definitely uh, that is definitely the soundbite I hope people remember. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Uh, yeah, I honestly don't know what more to say to that. I don't feel like I can add anything. Um, so I will just segue into uh, our um, our our plugs. And uh, so I'll start <laughs> with uh, <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'll start with myself. Uh, you can find my work at the Cinemaverick uh, on Letterboxed. i also have I also have a website called the uh, you can find Noah. Uh, Noah had to had to dash, uh, but you can find his work. He is on Twitter at Noah France. He also has a website, francenoir.blogspot.com, where you can actually read his uh, recent sort of, uh, per- I guess, personal version of episode nine, sort of a, as a completely different story from uh, Rise of Skywalker, uh, based on sort of his sort of perceptions of last jedi and where he thought the story was going i have read so far he has uh chapter one and two up there uh it's kind of in i would say novel form um and uh, i've read his first chapter and i would definitely recommend i'm curious to see where the story goes from there and so i guess i would recommend reading it if you can um but uh, let's go to you alex
2: uh, so you could follow me on Twitter at Media Thinkings or on Letterboxd at Media Thinkings. I should say that I've been chronicling every film that I watch uh, during quarantine there. And I have a list called uh, Quarantine Watch List where I'm ranking all of the films as I watch them. So you can follow my progress as I make it through my large, large list of things to watch. Um <laughs> Also, you can uh, check out my work over at thepopbreak.com where I'm the TV editor. I recently wrote about Stargirl, the new CW DC Universe show. You, sh- you can check out that review. I am um, also host the TV Break podcast and also Goodbye to All That, which is a podcast about season and series finales of shows that we're covering on the site and shows that I'm personally interested in. So uh, but those... Uh, goodbye to all. G- goodbye to all that comes out twice a month on Tuesdays in the pop in the pop breaks podcast feed called the Breakcast. Uh, and TV break comes out uh once a month as well, and that's just a general TV topic podcasts that I host uh, with our um, editor in chief and our resident TV columnist. So you can check out all my work over at the popbreak and Breakcast podcast feed and, uh, the usuals. Um, also you can follow our show at Simajos on Twitter and Instagram, and you can, uh, subscribe to our show on anchor and overcast and Spotify and Apple podcasts, Google play most, most places you can find podcasts.
0: Well, thank you for that,
2: and uh, I I've very
0: much enjoyed your TV talk episodes. I have not listened to your Goodbye to All That episodes yet uh, because I've been waiting for a show that I've seen, uh, but I hope to <laughs> rectify that.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, last month we covered uh, last month we covered Normal People. And Westworld season three Uh, Mm -hmm. this month, we are tackling uh, Batwoman. um, And in July, we have more fun stuff planned. So I hope you guys, if you're interested in any of those shows, you should check them out.
0: Cool. Looking forward to it. Well, uh, with that, we're going to wrap up here. We want to thank all of our listeners and our subscribers for the Cinema Joes. This is Justin signing off.